Welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce our guest. But first, before I get to that, I'm going to introduce myself, in case you don't know by now and you in found this randomly. Or in case our guest doesn't know where he is or how he got here. Um, and there's another marker, 180. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is the yeah. big 180. Okay. Yeah, because people only start on the zeros. Is they won't the, start between. Right. Is it like our silver or gold or like puce? Uh, like, oh, like you mean like, uh, like platinum? Yeah. I think that's like 75 or something like that. What does the king and queen get when they have to, they've been uh, for like 25 years, 60 years? Mm-hmm. Di- diamond. Uh, I'm anyway. uneducated. Anyway, we're going to talk about who we are. Yeah. And for the purpose of Somebody this podcast, Matt, I'm Matt. No, Matt is not Matt today. Oh, I'm Storm today. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Because our guest is Matt. Yes. I'm always Steve. You are always Steve, that's unfortunately. Um, our guest is, of course, Mr. Matt Holtzclaw. So welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I've known Matt for a while through the burlesque world. Um, the I, multiverse, if the, you will. The burlesque multiverse. I like that. I like that, <laughs> since there are different uh, universes of burlesque. And so I've wanted him to come on for a while. And we had some scheduling stuff, but I'm glad to finally get you on the show. Um, and uh, I wanted to start with, because I actually don't know the answer to this. It's a two-part question. How early did you start doing magic or get a heavy interest in magic and then how did magic lead you to the burlesque community i started doing magic when i was a little boy i got a book on magic when i was around eight years old and a few tricks from a local magic shop um from a small town in florida panama city and it had a magic shop there that was only there for a few years but it was in just that magic window when especially boys get into magic and uh and a lot of guys get magic tricks from their kids. Even yeah, sure. Yeah, the, magic set, the, the yeah. ten in one set. That's right. And I just, I happen to be different. I just, I continue doing it. That's the only difference between you and me. And, uh, <laughs> um, but it was a, just a, a fun hobby I had for most of my life. Um, when I moved to New York in 2002, I met some guys who were doing it for a living, making a good living doing it. And I figured, oh, I'm, I'm as good as these guys, if not better. I can, I can probably do this too. And so I started doing like jobs, kind of like kind of like getting gigs and meeting agents and event planners who would kind of get me work. And uh, around the same time, I stumbled into the Slipper Room, um, I, the old Slipper Room, in the same place on Stanton and Orchard, but it was on the, the ground level. And I saw burlesque for the first time, and I had my mind blown. And I had never seen performance like this that had such freedom and such kind of just a, a wild sense of, of pride and, and perversity and beauty and. Just all the things that I like about good art is that it, it, it challenged me and it po- imposed itself on me. And, uh, the blatant disregard. Uh, <laughs> all the things, uh, yeah. And, and, I, and I went every week. You know, I started going all the time to see burlesque. And it was around, I think it was 2010, um, Nick Sin, a great performer that used to live here in New York, who moved to Portland, Oregon, I believe, he saw a picture of me doing a, a really gross magic trick. And had, without even seeing me do it, he just saw a picture of it. He asked if I wanted to be in his show. And I said, yes, I would love to. It was at the Slipper Room in a show called Metal Mondays. And from there, at the Slipper Room, I met uh, Madam Rosebud and Bastard Keith. And I met uh, a handful of other people that night that then just got me into other work, like Les Scandal. And then through through them, I met Doc Wasabasco. He sure. started hiring me. And I just started just meeting all these amazing people. 
and uh, and just slowly over the over the years, I started getting booked in more and more burlesque shows, and it's become a huge part of my life. I I, I probably do burlesque shows as much as I do regular magic gigs, and. I, I still love it so much. So it's, this Motley crew turned into a, uh, a universe of its own, and then that launched you into other circles. That's, that's right. Neat. Yeah, it's pretty great. I never imagined my life being that way. That I, I was a, just a, a fan of it for years, and now I am this performer and host. In this it. entity that, that people recognize. That's right. Actually, I want to go back to a word you used about burlesque. Beautiful. And that's something that actually came up earlier when we were talking before the show. Uh, we were talking about your stint on television. We'll get into that in a little bit. But you use the word beautiful to describe a trick. And I just love the way you, you used it. And you were talking about, I guess, the simplicity of it. Mm -hmm. why, why do you find that to be more beautiful than some of the more, like, really intense technical? Because we kind of mm -hmm. got into it, but we kind of didn't. Well, I find, I think, you know, I, tried to, I was trying to define elegance a long while ago. And I think there are better, smarter people that have done it before me. And why, do people, why are people drawn towards elegance? And uh, I, I'm not a fashion person, but I, I love this quote from Coco Chanel. <laughs> who said Lay it that, on us. <laughs> said, elegance is a refusal. And I think that that means, is it's, what if elegance is the opposite of vulgar, or, or yeah. something that is vulgar, is that it says that, well, I could, I could do all these other things, but I'm going to do just this thing. And um, hmm. I do, I'm a minimalist. I like magic that is very clear and simple and uses an everyday object or an everyday idea. And something impossible happens with that everyday object, and that's that's the kind of art. I mean, not all of the art. I, I love crazy, wild, vulgar things, but I, the magic I do, the things that I'm drawn to in magic, tend to be very simple. Well, I, I do find it interesting that elegant is perfect. That perfect medium word, where it can apply both to things that are very technical, but also just very smooth. And you have to just be in awe by the fact that they work the way they do, and yeah. how they go from point A to point B. But then they can also be used for things that appear more random, more arbitrary, like other mm -hmm. art forms. Yeah. And the elegant just fits smack dab in between, which I think is a perfect way to, a perfect word to apply to magic in yeah. general. Because well, it is art, and it is also something that has a science behind it. True, exactly. Well, you know, one of the most important magicians, arguably the most important magician of the 20th century, this uh, magician named Di Vernon, said that, you know, magic is not confusion. Uh, you should not be confused by what's happened. You should be maybe uh, baffled, it should be a mystery of how it happened, but the plot should be very clear. You know, should what be was enraptured it? every step of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should not have a like. Wait, wait. I, I think that was kind of magical. Though. <laughs> I think well, I don't understand really what happened. But you know, you, they should have. No, he, someone floated. Something was broken and yeah. restored. And there were no questions at that moment, and it was a, a unity of feeling within the audience. That's, That's right. Pretty incredible. That's right. And I find this I, to go back to your question. I find that to be beautiful. I, and I, I think the themes of magic are all based in kind of a breaking the laws of physics and the things that we know can and cannot happen and when you we can break the idea of that you know if, if I'm hurt I can be healed or if uh, what's lost can be found and those are those are beautiful ideas to and me, you, you know? I mean I guess without actually experiencing the act I mean it, it can come across as something that's fairly ineffable and that's after all what art is which yeah. if there are any naysayers out there in the audience yeah. as to why a magician is on a music podcast that I think is yeah. a crossover within uh, probably the first five minutes I, I, I'll <laughs> say as as, people, as baffling as people find magic I hope um, or, or where they can't find a solid answer to how it was achieved yeah. and that's the beauty of magic by the way too is that you know what you're looking at is fake and it's not really happening that's the beautiful irony in, in an adult's mind 
It's a very adult. And art an adult, form. you threw the adult in. It's there a very adult because, art form. Uh, it's, it's, I don't think that, I think kids can enjoy it. Obviously, they can, but I think adults, because they they have so much more life experience, they know what can and cannot happen. It can have a really dark, wonderful poetry in their brains. Of I've just got so fooled, or did I? Or was, was, did that really happen or not? Um, with music. I don't understand how the hell music's made at all. <laughs> you guys were talking earlier about music, and you were using. I, I, I can. I've never written a song. I have no idea how a song is made. I don't know how the first chord on a guitar is strummed. Really, I, I don't understand it. I completely find it as mysterious as anything on earth. Well, we'll get into that later. Yeah. And uh, well, you bring it up, has a magic to it above yeah. titles uh, and albums, notwithstanding. <laughs> you you bring up music though, and I do want to talk a little bit about the style of music that you listen to because I always find it interesting. Artists and, and performers I speak to who are not necessarily musicians or have a connection to music, how they pick and choose music. So how early do you, do you remember how early it was when you started getting into music and what kind of music you started listening to? I remember the first time I really enjoyed music. Uh, I think I, I was, I, I watched a lot of Saturday Night Live and that was my, I was addicted every Saturday night. Uh, I was allowed to watch that and I, and I had a, I saw a lot of great music on there, but I think at one time they had the four tops on and they, oh, were, sure. they were much older mm-hmm. and like, Hearing Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, I mean, I was like a child for it, but I, that just spoke to me. And watching sure. the guys dance, and I just, I loved uh, Motown at a young age. But then I would say the first music I really lo- looked forward to was funny music. Like Weird Al Yankovic was a oh, huge, sure. huge yeah. guy for me. Right. Um, I wasn't, you know, I really wasn't into, uh, I was a child of the, of the 80s, and hair metal and sort of the, the decadence of uh, guys with big hair and, and expensive clothes and things, <laughs> things like that didn't do much for me. Because I was a kid without any money, I was from a poor family down south, and um, it wasn't until honestly, <laughs> where I really was touched by music, where I I, I think I got it was honestly, uh, Kurt Cobain. When Nirvana mm, came out, sure. there was a guy who looked the way I felt, sure, and sounded like how I think I felt. You know, there was a there was an anger and a nastiness and a and a unwashed sloppiness to it that I just completely went, oh my god, I get it, I get it, I get it. <laughs> And not not to age you, but since yeah. we were talking about like how it wasn't there in childhood, what yeah. was your what was around your age when the Kurt Cobain thing was being experienced? That was what was that 91, 92, 93? I think, yeah, around there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 12, 13. 12, 13. And I had okay. never, actually the, that's the, the first to be honest, one. that's earlier than most people when they actually like are touched <laughs> oh, by yeah. music. I always loved music, but I, I know that uh, the first albums I bought were like Nevermind, Pearl Jam, Ten, mm. a Jimi Hendrix compilation, and then I think I had a Van Morrison CD, and I was and I started I was starting to get into like. I met my good friend Darren, who turned me on to Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, and some, and some of those writing that had in Tom Waits, and I got really into writing and lyrics and, the, and some of these gritty, raw, beautiful lyrics. And uh, I was around a lot of like shitty country music. Sorry for cursing on the podcast, guys. No, it's alright. Um, Don't worry about it. I was around I, around that time. There was like, pop country was all I had around me, and I hated it. Yeah. Because, because it, and I, and I couldn't even appreciate. It. I can't write a good pop country song. I don't sure. know how the hell it's made, but I just I didn't like the kind of a proud uh, banality of it, you know, and that it was just simply about a lifestyle versus anything deeper. It was just sort of like my truck, this... I got. I eat this. I drink that. I watch this. I, you know, that's kind of what it was. A, and I, I could see how that would be grating to someone like you, because you were very, uh, you were very keen to point out a lot of the lyrics that you liked earlier, and we'll be getting into that later in the yeah. podcast. But uh, that that shows that you have a propensity for wordsmithing, and I noticed that was certainly there uh, in your magic act. You have a huge storytelling component that goes into that. And mm-hmm. when did you start developing that 
out of the magic itself? How did you develop the stories and and the the routines that actually became more of a more of a narrative? Well, my, the first magicians I saw that I really liked uh, were uh, on Saturday Night Live, a uh, Penn and Teller, sure, yeah, which are heavy heavy writing in mm -hmm. that, and like really smart. They were proudly intelligent. They didn't they they didn't go for the dumbest guy in the room. They went for the smartest guy in the room and hoped everyone else would come along with them. <laughs> Same thing with Harry Anderson. These are the first magicians I saw. They were they were not saying these redundant things like here I have a ball if I put the ball in my left hand you know they were not they were yeah. just doing it and they were talking about ideas that were bigger than just magic they were talking about the ideas of what's real versus what's a lie and they were talking about how does this apply to politics and religion and everything else and yeah. they were they were making it something bigger than itself, you know? Well, that's actually a, a great tool for misdirection that's mm -hmm. used in magic. And I found that's been one of the more engaging qualities for not just magic in general, but like the showmanship of a lot of both visual and audio acts mm -hmm. where you have sort of a disconnect between the two. Mm. Because you'll see one thing going on, you'll hear the other thing mm -hmm. going on, and it splits your focus just enough that things can slip by. So I, sure. I, I assume it's a pretty good tool that, for what you do. That's part of it. I mean, that, that, in some ways, that's, that, that is definitely a tool, but in some ways it's secondary. I mean, I, I'm, I'm big on wanting to at least communicate something to an audience. I mean, I'm, I'm not up there trying to uh, have a huge, uh, I don't know, carry a torch or anything, but I am trying to say something about how I feel about what I'm doing. You know, a, a magic is yeah. often on the lower rung of the art forms, just above mime and, I mean, I don't know. Uh, oh, we're not going to rank it. No, but it, look, look, it's not, you don't, <laughs> I have I performed at the Museum of Modern Art, but I, I know that I was sort of a, 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 a fun novelty thrown into the, uh, the night. You know? I think it's fascinating, obviously, that, like, like John said, the whole misdirection thing is that you're playing with people's levels of consciousness at that moment. Like, they're, Almost in the midst of the speech, they start to immerse themselves into the experience of, oh, well, this is a public speaker. Yeah. And the longer and longer it goes, the further and further they drift from the fact that something is about to blow your mind, yeah. or it may be subtly blowing your mind already as yeah. they're paying attention to the story. And I think that's a fascinating experience, well, I, yeah, deeply a, artistic. The old idea that people care about people more than anything. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can go up there. We know great magicians who go up there and really don't do a great magic trick, but they're great performers. And yeah. I think that if you can walk up in front of people and talk with confidence, plant your feet, mm -hmm. and command a stage, you don't really have to do much else. I mean, people, that's what stand-up comedy really is, is that what else is that guy doing but talking? You yeah. know? I like magic. I, I, I love doing it. I love what it does to an audience. And I, I mean, it's, there was a reason why I don't do something else. I mean, I, I, it's a big part of my life. Um, I, I really like what magic does to an audience. I like, I like watching people have that collision of what they see versus what they know. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing. And I keep using that word "beautiful" because it it really is something. Um, it's something so human. It doesn't work on a. It doesn't really work on a deep way on a toddler or a dog or someone with half their <laughs> brain missing. It works on a highly intelligent, thinking adult. Yeah, you know? I love that. It's pretty fascinating that it actually captures children, and then they they go back and it's like, oh wow, that was just that was on that reached me on one level at that age, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's reaching you on three, four, five levels. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I want to bring up something John mentioned a little earlier, and a connection we have. So uh, listeners know, and scoops who've come over from the ice cream social know that I met Matt Donnelly over uh, the summer when I went on my honeymoon last year. And uh, you actually have a connection to Matt Donnelly and Penn & Teller, as you mentioned earlier, because you were on their show, Fool Us. Yes. And so, could you tell us a little bit, I mean, if you guys haven't seen it, you can look up Matt Holtzclaw's performance on YouTube on Fool Us, but uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like, how you got involved in Fool Us. I know you said you've, you've told me off the air that you met Penn & Teller bef way before yeah. that, and you'd known them, but how did that happen, getting on the show and, and, and performing for them? Well, Teller and I have been friends for nearly 10 years, and, uh, uh, 
Penn I'm getting to know just just recently. But I, I you know, I, and that's mind blowing to me because as a kid they were such heroes of mine. Yeah. And I, and, but Magic's very accessible. You you can get to know your heroes in Magic. But right. they, those guys are they're up there as far as more famous, known sure, for sure. A, a lot of they this, also have their tentacles reach out into many different yes, areas of art as well. They're the only magicians I can think of that have ever been asked to, regularly to be on political talk shows about their points of view yeah. on. As current events. What Absolutely. other David Copperfield's not asked to do that. <laughs> no, Chris sure Angel not. is not asked to do that. <laughs> no, you know, definitely not. Penn and Teller are asked, like, well, God, what do you guys think about? Clearly, this? there's something there. Yeah, <laughs> something they, they they transcend the form. That's yep. kind of what you hope to do. And uh, anyway, they um, they're uh, they were we got to be friends. And then when Foolus came around, um, it was a British TV show for the first season, and I I really loved it because it was interesting to see all different kinds of magic. And also for there to be this kind of like you got to see on the inside of what how magicians talk to each other about like well I think you might have done that I think you might have done this you're basically trying to fool two of the smartest magicians alive yeah and um, and a lot of times you the magicians will try to use magic knowledge against them but um, when they contact the producers contacted me and said like well you know we know who you are we'd like you to come on uh, send in some videos of what you think you you would like to do. And I sent in some things I th- I'm pretty sure I, th- I would have fooled them, but they picked a really nasty, gross trick that uh, that I do, and uh, the great great guy named Wayne Houchin invented. And um, I did that trick along with this ancient old trick called the Hindu thread trick. And, uh, and you can see this all on the front of, of all on my Matt's fa- website. Exactly, It'll be linked in the show notes. That's right. And uh, and it's I did these two tricks, and I knew they would both work. I wasn't worried about that, but and I I wasn't really that concerned about fooling them. But uh, to be there in Las Vegas on their stage, on the yeah. Penn and Teller Theater stage, in front of Penn and Teller, with 1,500 people watching and nine cameras on me, it was one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done. Really? Question. And when I noticed in the very beginning of that segment, you uh, you were shocked at the size of the stage. Was that a genuine reaction? or a oh, that was part all, of the that act? was written. That was all written. You go in and you rehearse it with the director, and then you go and rehearse it with the cameras, and they were saying, like, you know, you're doing, you're doing this really small, tiny, delicate thing. Let's make a joke about it. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's just... let's. Do some personality stuff early. That's that whole thing about planting yourself and making yourself human. Gotcha. And, uh, so yeah, that was all contrived. Every mm-hmm. bit of that. So. That's, that's, <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> Sorry to break the illusion of. <laughs> that's why we really podcast. We're unearthing the artists. Yeah, yeah. Breaking uh, them down. Uh, but no, that was really exciting. And then to have you know Penn Gillette sitting there and talking to you and telling you like how much they like your work and how much they how, and just all these nice things. I mean, I was completely. Uh, that just dumbfounded by that I was there. It was a really special, special time. Yeah, yeah, I'm very proud of it. It was good. It was a good, good experience. Now, were there any um, uh, well, repercussions is the wrong word. <laughs> it sounds like it's going the wrong way. But was there any anything that that, that that I guess came of that as far as using it toward your uh, you know the next step? And uh, uh, there's a, f- a few lousy YouTube comments, I guess. <laughs> no, hey, well, try no, not no. to read those. Oh yeah, don't don't <laughs> read those. No, I, I got some great gigs out of it and some and some nice. Um, Congratulatory remark, remarks from fellow magicians, and that Absolutely. was. I mean, really, I think it's a resume point because that's how yeah. resumes work. At that, if you're dealing on the magician level or any artist level, it's it's about just what you've done, but even if it is a stint. In, in the end, it, it, while I was alive, I got to be on, you know, a show that is hosted by my heroes. You know, like yeah, that, yeah. that's that's something I never. If you told that to eight year old me, just yeah. you'd never imagined the guy, the kid watching them on SNL would end up there. That's that. You know, it's not that I want my life to end tomorrow. It's just if it did, oh, yeah, I, did. I got to do that. You know? I'm sure it won't be the last that's, time. That's all I give a shit about. Is that I didn't care about anyone else, like what they what they thought. So sure. that was. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the day to day work then, because uh, you're really big here in the five boroughs. What is the caliber of work that you do? Because I noticed there's also a lot of like you do private parties, yeah. or is it just does it change by the day? Like, mm-hmm. what is the nature of the the 
not the nine to five work <laughs> for a magician, but is it, oh, you know? Well, most of my day is spent answering emails and practicing and writing and, and you know, working on new material. But uh, let's say when it comes to performing, that what pays the bills is corporate events and the thing. It's kind yeah. of the cliche, like, you know, corporate events, private parties, and, you right. know, yeah. Um, There's got to be a lot of eye rolls in the midst. Yeah, no, yeah, but I, I love it. I mean, I, I get to meet really incredible people. I've, I've, I've made amazing friends from that. I've, 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 I've gotten to meet other heroes of mine just being at these invite, invite-only parties and things. And it, often it's just in, it's um, interrupting people while they're saying hello over cocktails, and that's fine. My favorite is when I get to have a you know a, a separate room where you bring in 10, 20 people, and they sit around a table with me, and it's intimate and captive, and awesome. that's really exciting. Um, I love being in burlesque because you. Uh, I get to do magic in front of an audience that's not captive. They're mm-hmm. there to see something other than magic, and magic takes such extreme focus. Mm-hmm. If I can bend them towards being focused on magic, then that's it feels like weightlifting. So that when I walk in front of an audience that is captive, it feels like oh my god, day at the beach. Wow. Compared to that, you did mention you like the macabre, and yeah. from the Penn and Teller piece, you pulled a string out of your eyes. Yes. It was gross. It was gross. <laughs> but you. you you did mention some other things. What are some of the other like more extreme uh, performances you've done? Like, have you done anything like really out there yet? Like, what what have you been working on? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I I did work with the way I started working with Teller is we worked on um a really ultra violent and gory uh, version of Macbeth. It's a f- favorite Shakespeare play of mine. Because you wow. got to make that more. Gore yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, whole, the whole idea is that we, we show you all the things that are usually left off stage or, or oh, left to okay. the imagination or that are hallucinatory. We're going to show you okay. all those things. So if, if someone's seeing blood on their hands, you see the blood. They end up covered in it like Carrie, but you don't know where it's coming from. Um, you see thing, You see a dagger floating. You see witches appear and disappear, that sort of thing. And um, so I've done a lot of special effects, and I've worked on a lot of like gory props and things like that for people, but... I would say for myself, I mean, I, lo- I do love the macabre, and I, I have incorporated that into magic a bit, but sometimes I find magic just in its essence, just if you, if I really made this pen vanish, I mean, mm. it sat here and it just lost color and, and vanished in front of you, and it was really magical, that would creep you out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would absolutely upset you. And you're staring at this pen because if I did that, it would upset everything you know that you've learned so far in life. Yeah. And I'm not going to. It's just Aww. the point is, is that... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the point is, is that uh, magic, by, I think it's very nature, has a really challenging and disturbing uh, quality to it. And, it, and I don't know if it's necessarily macabre, but I think it, it's very hand-in-hand with horror as far as uh, when you see something that you know is fiction and is horror... There's a beautiful safety of like, oh, they walked away from that clean. They're totally happy. That's the whole uncanny valley concept. Yes. It's like, well, yeah. I saw it, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and the, the, you know, I think that uh, we watch a horror movie and we can be disturbed by it, but go like, oh, but I bet they laugh their asses off off camera while they were covered in fake blood and oh, everyone's yeah. safe. And I don't enjoy videos where people really get hurt. I don't enjoy a, a real yeah. slap in the face. I don't enjoy someone shouting too much at each other. But I love, I love artifice. I love. I love knowing that there was a committed illusion. And magic is, is that, you know. We're still all staring at that pen. <laughs> yeah, waiting for it to disappear. Um, a physical magic trick wouldn't go well on the audio podcast. Yeah, it does not so much. Um, yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit, go back to burlesque, but to talk about, and I know you don't like talking about him, but he's a friend of mine, and uh, I met him through you. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. your cousin, yeah. Stash Novak, yeah. the uh, the burlesque superstar, I guess we can say now. Is, he, is that really what he's considered? <laughs> I mean, he has his own show now. Oh, I guess he does, yeah. So did he get introduced to burlesque through you? Did he meet... Uh, burlesque producers through you? Is that how there's you got into a, the business? 
there's a clinical term for for sort of a being that that sucks and lives off of another person. That's called a parasite. <laughs> and um, a I, leech. A leech. There you go. That's perfect. And uh, this, he sort of you know uh, glommed on to me getting to be around burlesque, and then he can be charming, but um, he, he he somehow got his own gig at the Slipper Room hosting. Uh, actually, the last three Thursdays of every month, uh, every Thursday, but the first Thursday of the month at midnight. And, and what's the name of his new show? Uh, it's called Stash Novak's Midnight Fingers. Uh, it's just it's <laughs> pretty <laughs> <in> the title. <laughs> he's a, it's horrible. He's really he means no harm. Really, he he doesn't. He's harmless. He's harm, He is kind of harmless. <laughs> I mean, his, his common thing he'll say is that if he's uh, he if, if you let him stay with you, which he has he kind of couch surfs and and kitchen floor and bathtub surfs. You know, he sure sleeps wherever he can fall. You know, uh, he won't take anything from you. Unless he really needs it, or he can sell it for money, so that's that's the only way he'll really hurt. <laughs> so you. at least yeah. there's an honesty. There's an it. honesty to him, and he and he, he really is a kind-hearted guy. He's just a total idiot. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm friends with him, so it's why I bring it up. And I was just curious. Um, I haven't been able to wrangle him onto the show yet, but hopefully in the future. Get your shots. He's <laughs> he's not a good guy to be around. Certain character traits there remind me of a character that I'm make a comedy character. I'm kind of writing with a friend of mine called the Vagrant, <laughs> which. Uh, that's not a good thing to compare to. <laughs> I'm st- needless to say, I'm still having aftershocks from Midnight Fingers. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> That's just it's too a funny. vile, vile title for anything. Yeah. Right, yeah. especially involving him. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that this is a good place to start making our way towards the reason we brought you on, besides you being so charming and amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about the uh, album you brought us today. So... I, I so talking about magic and you working nights. It's why we had trouble getting you on. You know, nights is when you work, and that's yeah. when we record. Right? Shocker, internet. We record at night. I put a timestamp on it. So yeah. Sue me on Mondays. On Mondays. On Mondays. Yeah. Reading content. So so yeah. Supposedly, like one of my favorite gags on the Nerdist from the beginning. Oh no, it wasn't the Nerdist. It was uh, Paul F. Tompkins had a has a podcast called the Paul F. Tomcast, and. Um, when he would record it, he'd say it's it's nighttime on the internet in the mm-hmm. intro, and people gave him so much. Shit, it's not nighttime; it was during the day, and it's like <laughs> it's a podcast. I record at night. Right. Shut up. <laughs> but um, so I, I always find dating content just hilarious because that's the only time I actually want to feed the trolls. Mm. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so um, I had uh, I had wanted to bring you on for a while. Um, I had heard you on Legs Malone's podcast, oh, Lunch, she's great. Lunch with Legs, yeah. who's a, another burlesque performer, and uh, and so I reached out to you and. You had a little bit of trouble picking an album, as I, did. I understand. Well, you said you wanted a, it needed to be a new album. Right, which is a newer rule for and, us. And I, I I listen to a lot of, not old music necessarily, but I, I listen to a lot of music way after it's come out for some reason. I don't know why. I, I very rarely buy a new album. Um, I, I listen to a lot of things that are years old. I also listen to a lot of like old country music, and I listen to, like maybe I, I, think, I would say, honestly, like Beirut and Future Islands are the newest... And like maybe the last Beck uh, album. Those are the newest music. That's the newest, newest music I've bought in a long time. The, the last David Bowie album is the, is the newest music I've bought. And so when I looked at the top 50 titles of uh, of albums of what I would actually want to listen to, I, I, I just I couldn't decide because it, it, all, it all sounded like things I don't like and I wasn't being very adventurous. <laughs> and so I really threw a dart in my brain and I landed on Duran Duran, uh, Paper Gods. Uh, Really, only because um, it seems so opposite of me in so many ways. I, I am I'm not ever confused for a club kid or a <laughs> nightlife sort of person, even though I, I work at night on stage a lot. I'm not really into new wave, and I'm I'm not um, 
that is aesthetically lithe and glossy. And I, I only know Duran Duran from my childhood when they were on VH1 and MTV a lot. And I love the song Come Undone. And I've enjoyed uh, Rio. And I've really enjoyed certain. I really enjoyed the very pretty women they had in their videos, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's what I really enjoyed. So, kids, what, what music videos are is a long time ago. <laughs> Back in the day, uh, there was a, t- a network devoted just to music videos. Too. In fact, in fact, it was called Music, music Television. Television. Yeah. And so, music videos were these videos that accompanied music that were uh, <laughs> on TV. You might find them similar to the music videos you find on YouTube now. Yes. In fact, they're extremely similar, similar. Up to the point where almost all of them are uh, on uh, YouTube. YouTube. Now, they are the same thing. Yes. Um, Normally, I wouldn't prompt you to have a segment, but can you make that like a thing? A thing like, where like, I explain old, old man media, Matt just old man Matt, where I explain media that's outdated in the thirty years. <laughs> I've been Sesame alive. Street corner right there. It has each time is, yeah. been unexpected and pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I also remember like bands like Duran Duran and, and Billy Idol and and a bunch of other like bands in the late 80s, early 90s yeah. having really pretty women in their videos. And like I was coming of age, the, me and Doc Wasabosco have a joke about how um, Billy Idol in his music video for Cradle of Love, um, he had been recently in a motorcycle accident and so they only filled him from the waist up. And he was like in paintings or portraits on the wall, but the rest of the video was this young co-ed getting undressed and destroying this guy's apartment, like the straight lace guy's apartment. And it was just like I remember seeing that video and going, "Oh my god, this is so hot! Why is this so hot?" <laughs> and like me and Doc have that joke, like videos like that in the late '80s, early '90s were like everywhere. You know, I mean, think about White Snake and their video for Here I Go oh. Again on My Own oh. with his, I think it was his wife at the time, Tony Katane, yes, just. Rolling all over a hot car. There is yeah. a reason why I like muscle cars from the <laughs> 1960s and 70s, and hair metal is probably the primary yeah. reason. Secondary is because of how awesome of a car, but yeah, yeah, hair metal did you do know, a lot. What he, he said in, in an interview, one of my favorite moments in any interview was he's talking about Tony Katane. He said, like, when I met her, she turned my blood to wine. And I think it's one of the <laughs> funniest, that's a great quote. It's one of the funniest things you can say about. No, I'll tell you what's funny about um, about uh, Duran Duran is that I yeah I loved I, I would always watch their videos and I and the music was catchy, but um I mean there's some good writing in there you know I, I think that the the lyrics to come undone is a song about who do you need who do you love when you come undone if you just yeah. say that that's a really touching thing to say I, I'm huge on lyrics I, I have friends who I was talking to my good friend Andrew about Papa was a Rolling Stone. It's one of my favorite songs, incredible songs. Like two minutes into this seven-minute song before the lyrics even start. Yeah. And he, he loves it. I was like, that's a tragic song. Yeah. And he said, why? I was like, if you listen to the lyrics, it's about the only, when you know our dad left and the only thing he left us was alone. It's yeah. a heartbreaking song. Yeah. Even though it's funky as hell and you cannot deny it. It's, it's I love lyrics. I love thinking about why they use those words, if they use words at all. And I think I think it also, uh, not just Duran Duran, but a lot of bands back in the 80s, they used the videos in order to really bring out the visceral content that was actually in those lyrics. Mm. So I remember earlier before, I think it was you who called the uh, videos decadent. Yeah. Um, at the same time, they were also were very controversial. So yes. Because the, the art form of the music video was not really refined, it was kind of new, and yeah. they were like, well, how are we going to do this? And a lot of bands who were already kind of on the edge of society as it was, they decided yeah. to just, well, we're going to take a, a free leave for this. <laughs> yeah, let's just get smoke machines and just right. band, get exactly. the band. 
banned in every state. Don't edit us. Don't edit us. I I had fellow, like, you know, poor kid friends who, like, they loved the kind of the, again, the new wave sort of lithe and face paint and, you know, fairly specific hair. And that that did a lot for them, Duran Duran and things like this, because they saw it as hopeful, as, like, something other than squalor. Mm -hmm. And I saw it as, like, I'll never have that as a fucking one. Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) I like angry. angry. So they, they couldn't be more different than, like, what I first got into as far as music. Again, I was just going with, like, spitballing like why don't we talk about something I'd probably know nothing about and let's just see if I enjoy it at this age that's cool and it's also something that probably a lot of the public will know a lot about come to think of it which saves me the usual spiel of uh, exactly what Duran Duran is is. I think we just did a pretty good job but if you don't know they are from Birmingham and they've been around since 1978 and their biggest single probably unfortunately is Hungry Like the Wolf of which I'm not the hugest fan of I will (laughs) say that up front but I confess it's not indicative of their work we're gonna get into this off air because I really want to know why you don't like it but that's a conversation for another day yeah it's personal personal. Um, and yeah and we appreciate the funny thing about you not really feeling like you know a ton about it besides their singles I think we're all kind of on the same page with this album like I can speak for myself at least I know their hits and I like them but beyond that like this is probably the first full length Duran Duran album I've ever listened to Mm -hmm. they're not a band I think of as being like oh yeah that's an album band can't (laughs) shut it off just can't um Yeah, and we start off with the first track, which is a title track of their latest album, Paper Gods, called Paper Gods, and it and already features artists. Yeah, I didn't it features think they Mr. Featured Hudson, a lot of artists. who I believe is a DJ and dance musician as well. Um, if I'm wrong, internet, yell at me in the comments. But I believe that's that's who he is. I didn't actually have a chance to look up his work. Um, this song, for an intro track, is surprisingly long, at least for what we get Usually, usually intro tracks are about two to three minutes and they kind of just throw something at you that's engaging and pulls you in that's kind of predictable. Whereas here, this one's a, a whopping seven minutes long and it also isn't indicative of what I would have expected from Duran Duran. That's what I was about to say. It's so opposed to what I had previously associated with Duran Duran that I, I was at this point willing to take this as a completely fresh artist, not even forgetting the fact that, of course, they're pretty old. Uh, what was it? The lead singer already over 60, I think? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, the lead singer, was that Son Le Bon or something like that? Wait, Simon Le Bon? Simon Le Bon, yes. Yeah. Simon Le Bon. And uh, to Simon be honest... Simon the Good. I mean, Simon the Good. There you go. <laughs> he did, well, against the point, he does not sound his age in the slightest. No. And that's a that's a positive thing, because a lot of bands, they get that raspiness, especially they've been screaming on stage for years and years and years. He doesn't have a, a wink of that. It's It really comes off effortless. I you could This could be confused with just some fresh band, some upstart from last year, and or perhaps a band from back in the 70s. It seems very amorphous. And speaking of the vocals, it starts off a cappella. You mm-hmm. have almost a choir beat system going on there as uh, phrases get repeated over and over, sort of background, low-key, multiple vocalists. And then when he steps in, it comes off as a duet, but it's a duet of an identity versus masses, which is plays well into the theme work of the lyrics themselves. I like the way this introduces, and it introduces something very... Very different from not just Duran Duran's idea, but also from a lot of what we've been listening to recently. Yeah, I mean, as far as the background vocalist, it's kind of like this doo-wop style. Just male harmonies, like, filtered almost as if through a phone receiver or something. And then his vocals come out straight, beginning the chorus, which is actually a very light, pared-down chorus. Um, Normally, this is where you'd get a verse, but instead you get a chorus right away. And the doo-wop continues in the background while he, he, the primary vocalist, just starts singing. And it's mixed as if... 
it's in the 80s, despite the fact that the music still sounds exceedingly modern. And I found that to be wholly accessible, forgetting the fact that I only just noticed the timestamp around this time and didn't think that they could sustain this for seven minutes. But luckily, it does transform itself as it goes. Yeah, it kind of converts into this synth pop, you know, kind of something we, we've heard quite a bit of uh, on other dance records. But not to this mixing quality. No, yeah. yeah. and it, But it, the shift does definitely go towards something dancier, though still stays fairly low-key, but it is it is building up a little more. They're, they're taking something that's not identical to what we started with. It's, it's the fact that it's more of a deeper percussion that's not so heavily focused on the kick drum. It's the, the synth tones that, that get layered on top of that are very light, airy. They're, they're out there. They're not really trying to match to the rhythm or anything like that. They're just there to sort of accent what's going on. Yeah, there's, like, the there's like a steady popping sound, and then over that there's like these series of like water droplets in the yeah. background. So it's really and interesting the from the texture perspective, and that's, the bass that's, was the That's best a part. big texture piece. Yeah. That when that steps in, right before the first verse, you get a nice little, almost a soliloquy as far as uh, actual acoustic instruments go, of the bass playing around with what everything else that's going on, that when the verse comes in, and it goes full pop, including to have sort of like those random tonal pops that you get in a lot of pop electronica. Mm -hmm. I wanted to dislike the verse. I really did. The vocals, the vocals, I do admit, kind of interrupted uh, what I was perhaps liking more in that synth section because I, I agree 100% the bass was probably the best element about this. I liked it particularly because it was a sort of a, a strange clean bass that still had this dirty edge to it, like a mic'd amplifier kind of edge. Just a shade of it, but still probably with a little bit of direct input air, and it was just this this really immersive, I wanted more of that tone, and I wanted to persist, and the verse did kind of like liven it up, it let out the air a bit, but it was still okay. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very wishy-washy track, and a lot of this album will be very picky, perhaps, between verses and choruses. Well, also, I mean, the title, Paper Gods, we get, we get a strong mm. sense that well, the gods are paper, and I, I think that's about money. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's, it's on I mean, the nose about I mean, money. I was going to say, the, the poetry sucks of the first one. I'm just being honest. It's like, I mean, we get it. We get it from the title, and we get it from the first absolute... Yeah, know. this is not, like, high poetry necessarily. Like, you pretty much could read everything he's saying in the whole song with just, like, a couple lines yes, here. That's right, yeah. Bow to the paper gods, does the chorus. Bow to the paper gods in a world that is paper thin. The fools in town are ruling now, all the fools in town. Bleeding from paper cuts, money for headshots, fools leading today. Who needs it? Um, it's about L.A. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Headshots, there you go. There you go. Just this is name, corporate I'm, town, uh, drenched in money. I'm American trying to explain cycle. you guys a little cryptic, these lyrics. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it. You Thank get you. That's why I'm here. We need, we need this. This, this is your, why we brought you in on the I'm discussion. I'm your cipher. I'm going to help this out. Well, yeah. this isn't... It's not really unusual to have a kind of pop-oriented idea with very straightforward lyrics. At least we're not getting something that is... You know, kind of vapid right now. Which I mean, is coming. A, which is a, coming. Yeah, but we're talking about a title track and first track. It's not yeah. vapid. It's actually something. He's got that's... a point to make. Yeah. yeah. He sa and he right. says it in, well, I would say he says it concisely if it wasn't the fact that if you just took that line, I'd say, okay, yeah, it's an okay line. That's, a, that, that's, that's concise, but there's a lot more lyrics, and it just kind of drives the same point home. Yeah. That said, that's why I'm going to kind of focus on the music in this first track, because that is what I, I found to be perhaps the more engaging element. Mm. Because we... by the time it does um, go through a couple songs, 
cycles of verse and chorus. The, I, in fact, I believe it was the second chorus that became a little bit more interesting because amidst the, the melody, which is, I thought, exceedingly beautiful. It, it definitely trumped the verse hands down. And you have this very expansive synth atmosphere in the background, lots of reverb, very spacey sounding, almost sounded like comets are flying in from the left and from the right. So they like really embellishing with the sound bites and everything. But it, it's it just, just the whole texture of it seems so much more expansive than you'd expect from a first track on the album. And then eventually you have an interlude where they even go deeper into this. A very long interlude, which brings in a more post-rock atmosphere. At times here, yeah. they start sounding like the side, the version of Coldplay that I like best. And I know a lot of people are a little down on Coldplay because they became the poster child for, oh yeah, pop, easy listening rock. But there is a side of them, if you go back to their earlier work, where they really were barring more from that post-rock atmosphere. And everything was very moody. They would really lay it pretty thick with like several layers of guitar that were kind of light, very delicate, used more for atmosphere than as actual content, which is something I actually preferred. And this is really what I got here. Again, would never ex have expected this to come from Duran Duran, and yet they pulled it off effortlessly and made it unique over the course of the seven minutes. So, paper gods be damned, I don't care what you're trying to say, it's good music. And I did enjoy that outro, the sort of like waterfall type kept of it going effect even with further. the vocals, yeah. uh, the way they kept just falling down, falling down, falling down. It was a nice little bookend to complement yeah. the introduction. I mean, I would have liked, though, if the outro kind of just came to an end. It faded out, which, I mean, it, what, it's, it's a little cliche, but it's not terrible. But I felt like they just kept playing on and playing on. And well, I, I would have liked there to be some kind of like noted end or something. It would have gave it even more dynamics to the ending, Perhaps. I think. In this case, though, I, I kind of like it because this is sort of, I'm not saying musically, but thematically, I, I feel like it's being presented as the overture of the album itself. So having right. having a more defined ending to it instead of a cutout idea, it works pretty well because the expansiveness here is very interesting and we're getting something that we really don't expect. But when we go to track two, Late Night in the City, I think I expected this both more and less than anything else on the album. So, yeah. So this track, it's important point. to mention, features, I believe it's pronounced Kiza, K-I-E-S-Z-A. I believe it's Kiza, um, who is a, um, a pop singer um, uh, who is not far into this kind of music. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this song is straight up dance pop. Like, there's no illusions to it. It's not trying to be anything. It's not. It's tr not trying to break ground. That's why I look at what John said because yeah. it, it, you don't. You expect this from any pop album today, but you don't expect this at all, considering the way they left you right. at the end of track one. I, I mean, the very beginning was first of all kind of cancel out everything I had initially expected in the beginning of track one. Instead, this was very drenched in this 80s synth trance atmosphere, bleeding through everything. And then the vocalist sounded more like Lady Gaga than anything. It sounded like her brand of pop, which is a lot of blaring. You know, it's, it's in your face. I admit the bass kind of contrasted against that and brought everything a little bit more down to earth to follow, but uh, this track is certainly, whenever she sings, it reminds me of Poker Face, frankly. I mean, the, the, the song structure, too, didn't really give way to much development beyond the cookie cutter kind of music that we've heard in pop. I mean, the verses are kind of low key and easygoing, and then the the choruses are with this wall of sound, lots of you know instrumentation, but all at once, not really giving way to anything. Actually, Matt, you said the uh, same sort of thing you said in the first track, where it's kind of on the nose lyrically. It starts off, I'm not going to sleep tonight till the morning fills the sky. No one's getting left behind. This is our time. This is our time. 
And that's sort of the carry-on call of the whole song. I mean, that's a typical dance kind of song, I think. But, it, I mean, it, I think that there was something in it, though, that I, I, I wrote kind of morbid. And I kind of liked that it had, I mean, I like when I like juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. And I love that, it, okay, it's this dance song. But it kind of had this thing about not just last night in the city, like we're going to go back to Topeka, Kansas after this. <laughs> but yeah. that this is the last night ever. I mean, they, they talk about there's no tomorrow and these things like that. And I, I know that that can be a regular trope within kind of like dance like there's no tomorrow we're just gonna dance tonight but like it felt never go to sleep (laughs) yeah it felt strangely kind of there there was a kind of a something kind of ominous about that to me in this Uh, i don't think lyrics are mean nothing you know i think that there was something kind of sad when you say last night in the city it definitely it's not just any party of the week it's not just a random party in which there's going to be that person who's going to drag you out from dust to dawn this really seems more imminent like someone's not going to be around tomorrow either you're leaving because you have to leave or yes. you know someone's gonna die or, or, i don't know right right or we're gonna we're gonna just keep going until we can't go anymore but that then that's yeah i mean i don't know it does have a sense of like no i'm i'm moving and i and i'm i'm starting my life over and i can't ever be here again maybe i'm reading too much into a simple dance yeah, song, well but. i did notice that in the chorus yeah it does say because nobody cares if there's no tomorrow well that that is a little that is more ominous that definitely yeah. s- says like well we could all just go at any moment in which yeah. case even if maybe it's not true they're at least treating it as if it could be true right. that it could all be gone so well, we might as well keep on partying well it's also lends to that idea of like well, I hate YOLO and we've mentioned it before ever since the long <laughs> just last episode, episode in but, fact right. there's but that idea YOLO. that 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 you, you live like there's no tomorrow is this fact of you know you just live in the now and, and I think even if it's not as morbid as tomorrow everything ends is this idea of just taking today as it is yeah. it's kind of very realistic and honest and, and, and existentialist it's, yeah, uh, yeah this is a minor tangent but if for instance on more uh higher grounds you wanted to let's say persuade your friends that you really want to not go to sleep for New Year's you want to drag out this New Year's Eve party to to you know the wee hours of the morning say let's say to 6 a.m. then you can technically say that as far as the astral plane is concerned we have not really made a full revolution until 6 a.m. because after all it is 365.25 days which is why we have leap year so we won't be where we were last year at 12 a.m. until this Whoa. year at 6 a.m. And that's our aside by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, <laughs> no. If it, were Neil De- if it were Neil deGrasse Tyson, it would be way more charismatic. As charismatic as you are, he is more charismatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that man. Punch I, thought I, yeah. I thought I did well. But you, did, well great, you did a great I, job. I do Thank actually, you. though, John, bring up Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I'll only make a minor aside, but did anyone else see this nonsense about B.O.B. claiming the world was flat yeah. and Neil deGrasse Tyson having to shut yeah, him yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just, oh, man. All I want to say to that briefly is that I love the world we live in where someone so stupid could get served by one of the coolest nerds on the planet and that's that. <laughs> you, like, should, you should really look into the hollow world theorists oh and that's a thing. Yeah, yeah of course. Know. Of course yeah. it is. Anyway, back anyway, all, that, all that from how to guilt your friends. <laughs> back to the song. I did like one thing and that thematically the, the whole idea of being in the moment fit what this song was doing to a T. They're not really branching out out, uh, musically to try to shoehorn an idea in. I mean, they're actually playing to what they're trying to say in the song. Mm. It does mesh very well that way. I don't like that the chorus becomes a wall of noise because the verses do have a fairly predictable but enjoyable progression as new lines are introduced. By the end of it, it does become a bit of a cacophony, but it does do a good job of building up to that cacophony. Yeah. The chorus, though, just hits, and it just stays hit. It's sort of the the longest punch they could possibly pull. It's a wall of 
synth and it feels empty and I, 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 I just didn't feel that the melody was really strong enough in this case to carry it and I think that was my main problem. Yeah, I I think, by the end of it actually the melodies were really draining I thought. Yeah I just felt like while the other the first track was long but didn't feel long this track was shorter but felt kind of longer mm -hmm. because it felt a little repetitive. They lacked the color and the context of last track. Yeah. So alright track three You Kill Me With Silence it's a bold title. So this song starts with synth but not in the same way the previous tracks had we're, we're we're getting something a little bit different but when once when the synth starts on its own it, it kind of has an air of what i expect from kind of techno dance but then when the drum machine comes in shortly after and john pointed this out too it felt kind of like a rap song it it it, 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 it had that kind of hip-hop feel to it it, it it gives that illusion the very beginning. The tinny piano synth that, I thought that it, was it starts goofy. with. It was frankly, it was goofy in the very beginning until the tap comes in. And yeah, then the it tick. becomes like seedy. So yeah, weird I, and I think you yeah. even clarified, Steve, that you felt it was like gangster rap songs. Specifically gangster yeah. rap, yeah, yeah. Like this would be the backdrop to someone like swarmly bobbing back and forth and on it stage. might be one day. Maybe it will. <laughs> Sampling. Well, they could sample it. Who knows? The next two pieces to really get introduced, the bass and the real drum line in the song change that sort of sort of uh, happy-go-lucky sort of rap idea into something I love to get in music, and that's a manic idea, a very scattered, schizophrenic almost like setting. Essentially because it's such a big shift here between verse and chorus. Not in the same sense as with the last track where I just felt like, oh well, the chorus is something that I merely don't prefer. But I admit it was born out of the track. It was born out of the same musical ideas. I feel like this was... A completely separate idea just smacked be between it. Like, you wrote that, and then you wrote this, and well, in post-production, well, you can do anything. And the, then the chorus is, is angelic in many ways. I mean, it yeah. has that sort of high-reaching idea. It's got these, like, spacey phasing sounds, a lot of left-to-right panning, kind of similar kind of, what, kind of what you got in the first track with the, uh, the comets coming in uh, back and forth. It starts but off then, with no beat. And it actually it has develops such a, a very beat. soft beat. There is like this, such a this marching that comes yeah. through toward the end of the chorus, and it actually it actually serves to sort of it's like military drums. They serve to kind of focus everything and make it a little bit more intense. So for the duration, if you have blinders on, then uh, or, or or tunnel vision, then for the duration of the chorus, you can really start to get into this. I think it has more substance to it, and then suddenly it's back to the beginning, which take it or leave it it's it's how you described it in the beginning it could be a gangster rap backdrop uh it sounds if you would just describe the musical feel of it it's like the tinny effect of a vibraphone having an unholy child with a moog synthesizer that's the best way i could describe it I, the only reason why i know I how that, that would work uh, <laughs> is because you've explained what both of those are um I, I guess that's actually a kind of an interesting way of putting it because it, it feels like yeah, but it's not an interesting idea to me. <laughs> no, no, but it's 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 a mess in a lot of ways, and I like this mess between the two because they're talking about something that can go angry, something that can go depression. But here, it's it's it really feels more true to form. You kill me with silence. That that the sort kind of argument that never really gets said between yes. lovers. I love emotional it. violence. Yeah, I mean. I, what I loved about it is that it sounded manic. It sounded insane. It sounded like the banging your head against a wall 
talking to someone, pouring your heart out, and they give you nothing back. Yeah. And I think everyone's been there at some point, you know. Sure. And, uh, and maybe because I, I just went through something like this with someone, a dear dear friend, and and I and just you just tell them how you feel, and they just yeah. stare at you. I've been this been through this too many times in the past. Oh it's my like, God. It's kind of like it comes out of passive aggression. Oh yeah. They, like all right, well, you kill me with science, su- silence. Something is not said, and that in- inevitably causes the problem, which yeah. erupts from what may have been nothing or what may have right. been unsaid into something that is now this this big blow up. If we could have just talked, if you could have just had a conversation, yeah. maybe this wouldn't be so bad. But I feel like I'm lost. I've pulled a muscle in my brain trying to express to you yeah. something, you know. And you feel yeah. like, yeah, you're going a little bit insane in the process, and yeah. maybe that better explains just why these these two things are so yes. juxtaposed. And that's why I, one of, this is one of my, I had this marked as like one of my favorites in the in the album, just for that reason, that mm-hmm. it was so strange. And, and one of my favorite metaphors from this song, if I had a knife, you could cut the atmosphere. And I oh. love that knife and uh, not the tension but yeah the, it's not yeah. tension it's not the feeling but it's the atmosphere it's the thickness in the air yes. you could cut the air yeah that's something I, I don't really see going into but it's 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 like the words have been taking on weight around yeah. this yeah. person just that idea is so just provocative for me I love the way it's phrased particularly I like this other line I like this bed of nails that's what I tell myself couldn't be much worse in hell oh it's, how about that? Comparing it's, it's, the state of that that unease. How about that, that? to a bed of nails? But it couldn't be much also, worse. I like this bed of nails. Yeah, yeah, and, and <laughs> that, that's an excuse I, for not doing anything about. I the tell situation. myself, you yeah. know, that's tremendous. Well, it, it's interesting to me. I think also because the way it's approached is from a place of of manicness or even anxiety, and you don't hear a lot about that when you're talking about displeasure or heartbreak or just difficulty in relationships of any kind both friendship or romantic it's always about like the hurt or the physical pain or or the emotional pain in a you know in just heartbreak here it's it's attacking that anxiety and that that silence and that just just a very interesting way to go about mm-hmm. discussing this and i think that's really interesting the final element to discuss uh in, in this track for just from a musical perspective is also that that horn thing no it's warbling. not a horn it, it was like a, a synthesizer horn everything's it's... a synthesizer when you have <laughs> but no, 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 we gotta not, describe it it's not just a horn it's a screeching cat horn yeah it it warbles it's very wonky it like it it it, it peaks at times but in a way, it's just as goofy almost as that, that opening soundbite that it does kind of serve to liven up the track a little bit, even if it maybe is served just to be the, the passing neurons between these two opposing mindsets. Mm. And uh, I guess that's where, that's where you really, really do have to be paying attention to these lyrics, I guess, to appreciate the song in, in the same way. This is what's so funny is that with this album, when I pressed play on it, I, I bought it on my phone. I'm walking down the street listening to it. I was like, wow, these first three songs, there's something in each that I kind of, kind of got, you know, and especially mm-hmm. this one. It was so top-heavy with what I felt was a, a surprising and interesting album Yeah, um, that it started to, um, I don't always wear disappoint, but it just it had given me so much. I, I heard so much. I took so much in that I was, like, surprised and delighted by. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a handful of things that weren't that later yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there is a semblance of losing steam here, uh, and not to be all punny, but... Track that, four, pressure off. I was off. expecting this. Yeah, yes. of course you were. Of course you were. So this track features Janelle Monet and uh, Niall Rogers, um, both names that are known. One who's been around forever. The other who is more recent. I'll let you figure it out. Um, <laughs> but but this song, I mean, has Steve's name written all over it from the moment it starts, more or less. First of all, we've got Niall Rogers of Chic as well as 
working with m- hundreds of other artists. I'm exaggerating a little, but you know, Nile Rodgers has been around forever. In and fact, he was on a previous album of ours. Oh, we did um, um, Random Access Memories he was on. He was on Pharrell's record. He's mm-hmm. been on a few albums we've reviewed, actually. And he uh, here is, of course, providing that funk guitar that we get more or less from the very beginning of the track. His forte is funk, and you guys remember what I said in the Neon Indian episode, I'm useless for objective debate. Uh, (laughs) When when it's funk, I I just sit back and dance. Uh, The shoulder has immediately started going in on this track. I I couldn't help it, couldn't resist. Well, and also this track, from the minute it starts, has an attitude and kind of a strut that we haven't felt yet on the track, on the album, rather, which I really liked. It starts off steady, but the punctuated steady that you only get with funk, and the flair that they have in the guitar, the, the the playing that's going on right here, I'm immediately just calling it Daft Funk. I mean it's it's right there. It's <laughs> Daft got funk, yeah. it's got enough synth in there that I'm I'm recognizing some of the work from R uh, R A M, but I'm also really, really invested in what the guitar line is gonna be doing. And Daft Punk had no shortage of funk in their work, but at the same time, yeah, this really does seem like a, a an interesting blend between like it's using a lot of the electronica, but it's not letting up in the funk side. And whenever they they really blend those two uh, side by side, this could easily pass off as a Daft Punk track, frankly. Um, it's it's just, it's got a great, for at least for the duration of the verse, it has a great groove. You can't really say anything other than that except just dance. Just shut up and dance. Until you get to the chorus, then there's something a little bit further. The female vocalists step in, and then it, 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 it kind of kicks it up a notch, and this is when I really, really started liking it, particularly the chord progression. Um, e minor, down to C major 7 down to A7, or A7 dominant, which was just this, it, it, it's this three chord motion, which starts from this nice, uh, it's its its a dour place, and then it develops tension with the C major seven, and then finally there's just this overjoyous resolution. I was absolutely, like, I don't know why I notice chords more in funk, ironically enough, considering I probably should be just busy dancing, but maybe it's something in the background. It's like the popping, the texture of funk brings it out more so, and they're more inclined to throw in the upper partials. I don't know what it is. Well, I also want to comment musically on what you were saying before about how you know this resembles some stuff we've heard on those previous records we mentioned it would be unsurprising to me if Niles Nile Rodgers had a producer credit somewhere on the album or for sure on this track sure. because it, it's definitely threaded through but what's also really interesting to me is lyrically and content wise there's a lot in this song and like I love what you know um, Simon's doing with his vocals but when Janelle Monet comes in and then towards the end when they sing together like it's just a beautiful blending of vocals that were really great to the album and even though um, Kiza had sang earlier you know there was still kind of a bit of a separation there it didn't blend I felt as well as it did here the actual identity of the song kind of shifts between the verse and the chorus and Mm -hmm. I think that's what is one of my favorite aspects of this in in the verses for example searchlight the crowd I'm fixed on your face I know it well but it's a dream I can't place something is happening to me maybe it's happening to you 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 there's one, two, three, four references to the the personal, the person, the I. But the chorus that immediately follows, everybody, everywhere, feel it in the air. Oh, yeah, it's time to take the pressure off. That, that identity shift is so well married to the identity shift of the music itself. Sure. When it goes from that verse, it's very soloist. It's very stated. It's very the guy in the fedora had with sunglasses. Feels more night. rigid. But when you get to the to the chorus, it's sunlight. It's it's a park setting. Everybody's there. Everybody's enjoying themselves. You might say they're letting off pressure. I mean it's it's a great it's a great metaphor <laughs> in the song itself 
musically to parallel the lyrics here. No, yeah. And I'm really enjoying how it's 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 the little things that added up in this in this identity shift from verse to chorus that really cemented it as a good story song for me. A really solid like thematically meshing with the the message itself. Yeah, it's just I, I'm inclined to disagree only on this count because I I feel that really reading into the lyrics here, I see what you're saying about the back and forth. I feel like at the end, this is the first of a string of tracks that really are dance tracks in the end, and I don't think they're I don't think these lyrics are meant to be taken too seriously. After all, a lot of it is just even during like the the, the post chorus here, that whole oh 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 oh, <laughs> that that's when the shoulders really get going here. Not a lot is being said. It's time to take the pressure off. This is about as deep as a lot of dance songs, you know, for the past. 30 years and I don't think it's really meant to be taken on too many extra levels I wasn't saying it was great overall and that's where I'm going to agree with there you story wise right. I'll like just say lyrically. there are better lyrics on this album yeah significantly yeah it's, but I, this song for me is not about the lyrics it's about the feel yeah and the featured artists I mean they really add an energy and an attitude to this track that the other songs don't have it's about the phone. On a, on a, on a bigger uh, note, I know we're going to make this longer, but what do you think? Why why even have lyrics? They always mean something. That's oh, the, I, I'm, I'm I, a lyrics guy. You know, I, I typically think it really is just for a more musical texture, mm-hmm. just so that way you have something that is kind of driving it along, something to contrast against the bare-bone beat that would sound pretty empty by contrast. Mm-hmm. Although I do admit that as a fan of instrumentals personally, mm-hmm. I think you could just replace that with something else that would not take away the dance element right. in the slightest, but maybe you'd have a guitar there, and then it would be just as danceable. I mean, so, I mean, just having just having some, someone say yeah a bunch. I mean, that's that's that's, yeah. half, that's half the. Oh no, EDM we, we have the complete yeah. stepping a out, lot. stepping out, but, jumping up, jumping up, pressure off, pressure off. It's right. just about shots, it's, shots, it's about shots, 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 shots. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and that's fine. I, I just I, I mentioned earlier when we were listening to the album is that I I think that Call Me Maybe by Carly, Carly Rae Jepsen is one of the I think it's one of the better written pop songs and yeah. and, and the and the dance remixes. It still has some of her some of those lyrics that are fantastic i think yeah i do think it, it is very possible for a lot of uh pop lyrics a lot of dance lyrics specifically to just kind of they get a little bit lazy they're just uh, we need to fill this in with something yes. and there's so many varieties so many permutations of 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 we got to raise the roof what does that mean in the yeah. end you know it's just things that don't really have too much meaning behind them well, but they're like sound to... bites they function as musical sound specifically bites. raising the roof is that the speakers are so high up and our, our voices are so loud that the roof is popping off oh. from the sound waves yeah, I like, thought it was this like, dance move where you're actually I, you, you can't see this listeners but I am raising my hands with my palms towards they, the ceiling they should be a little off kilter yeah. yeah, oh good point good Lower, point, yeah. good point. Like good you have point. a limp. Well, I, fi- I figured it was either or, but doesn't that go back to that whole semantic satiation deal where the more and more you say it, What's it just becomes... double meaning? It becomes it's... meaningless, though. Well, like, what, 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 what about... What, semant- I, like, another S Raise word. the roof, raise the roof, what, raise the roof. What does it mean now? Is it semiotics or symbiotics where, yes, maybe the creator didn't know that it had meaning, but it does because it's in the scene. It's in the frame of the camera. It does matter. That gumball machine over there means choice. And I'm not saying that... And the longer you look at it, you just start to... You know, oh, you know what? That's what they meant. I think you just pinpointed what I was suggesting John was yeah. doing. <laughs> yeah, right. no, 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 no. I, I'm guilty of that, going like, but why did they choose to say that in the song versus something else? True. You know? And I, I, I swear to God, I think the lyric, the lyric from Call Me Maybe of Before You Came Into My Life, I Missed You So Bad, I think is one of the deepest lyrics in a pop song in forever. I, I, I preach it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I have no, issues no. with that song. Do you? Yeah, I do. That's why we have this podcast. We don't just out and out and out like diss pop. It's about no, spending time not. with it, and you find the gems, sure. you find the yeah. diamonds. I'm in going the rough. just by lyrics. I, I know shit about how a song's created. I, I, I like I love I love poem. I love poems. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that's a, 
See, that would be an interesting discussion. If we were talking Call Me Maybe, then I would probably talk about how I dislike the melody, but then you could come back at me and say, oh. ah, but the lyrics, and then the, the, you yeah. have a discussion. Yeah. Track five. Okay. Face for today. So here, from the minute it starts, we get dramatic synth. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, not that Low key specifically. Pace it's like it's contemplative. Yeah, it's, there's it's, almost it's, a hint of tragedy in it. But it's it's very somber. It's it, At the same time, it's somber, but also grandiose. And then suddenly that beatbox kicks in. Well, yeah. see, what they do is we get Matrix, and then it, it just skips straight to Matrix Revolutions. It's it's a complete <laughs> departure from the idea of what they first set up. I actually catch that analogy. Yeah, um, it works. Yeah, no, it, it's, yeah, because <laughs> it was a strange time to all of a sudden, like, invoke this grand cinematic atmosphere, but they did it pretty well. I just, eh, I was a little bit... I fell short on on the experience with the beat bella. I feel like they've already done that several times on this on this album. The the beatbox steps in, and then it's like, all right, now this is going to be the groove generally to, through to the end, and it might overshadow the strings. Um, it doesn't necessarily, but it kind of did at this moment. Well, you had said it. It almost had had like in the meat of the song this strange pitter patter that was a little different from like the kind of techno pop that we've heard before. But it didn't. It didn't sound super strange for the record. It doesn't reach out in a way. Yeah. Like it sounds. It strikes me as busy. Like they just wanted to replace the very the slow paced, um, uh, somber uh, atmosphere of the beginning, and yeah. they replaced that with what seemed like mm, glow sticks in our face. The whole entire track just feels like it should be. It should be raved to in a way. Oh, not the flailingly rave raved to specifically I think. that kind of deal. What is it called? Poi? Is that is that the name? Poi. Yes. It's, poi? It, so what yeah. poi is is this art in in, in glow sticks we on spin, ropes. We it's, spin. You spin shit. It's like spinning fire. Yeah. Poi is actually spinning fire, not spinning glow sticks. But uh, it's the same art, I believe. Which apparently is way harder than it looks. Yeah. Way way harder. Okay. Fire or glow sticks? Both. Uh, I okay. think I think apparently both. Okay. <laughs> but the fire would hurt more, arguably. The funny what? thing is this 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 whole scene is so decline now I feel like that should even count as one of your old man rants Matt <laughs> right oh, what I, is, think, I think the only reason I said boy is because you said it in a previous I, episode I just defended it positively saying it's way harder than it looks there right. you go. I still think it well, sucks well I know fire yeah. actual fire dancers in life and that shit is hard I've watched them practice yeah. the other stuff not so much we are scratching to get away from this song <laughs> <laughs> nope nope I still have complaints this is the first time I'm really not digging the vocals or like, the lyrics it, well mmm mm, it starts off strong a little rain of comfort in the afternoon to bottling up the room to lightening up your mood. The whole world is a mixed spot on a plastic spoon. You can find it or invite it, live beside it, laugh until you're crying. But it sounds I like that. But it sounds way more po- poetic reading it. It didn't sound yeah. that poetic I mean, in the song. You can barely hear it because yeah. the vocals are just not really being forceful. They're not emoting here. Hmm. In a way that I'm, I'm getting into. It's, once again, the busyness is starting to bleed over into the way the vocals are sounding. There's a lot of ambiguity in these lyrics, though. Like, at the same time you read it, and I was like, oh, okay, that's an eyebrow raise. I'm not exactly sure what it means. The further you get into this, though, by the chorus, I think you have to look at, look into it as, as a reflection of the title itself. Face for today. And the chorus goes, hold on to your time, boy. Don't be scared of what they say. You're putting up a fight, girl. If you got the face for today, yeah, the kind of just the veneer that you oh, yeah. put on in order to overcome the obstacles of life—that's how I sort of saw no, that's this. That's exactly what it is. This idea that you're when before you leave the house, you're putting on a face, a protective, a character. It's the idea, and, and we've talked to, to burlesque performers about this and some other artists. Like you at home is not you as an artist. Like yeah. I, I believe it was Galatea had brought it up either on the air or off the air that you know when. She goes out. She's Galatea, the living statue. She's a performer. She's an mm-hmm. artist. When she gets home, she's Galatea, 
the person hanging out on the couch watching some TV or sipping on tea. It's not, it's not, you put on your face, you go out and you do your thing. Yeah. That's an inevitable problem with artists is they expect the artist always to be the artist in real being life. Being on versus being off. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that this track is a reflection of that. I'm not nearly as beautiful as I am on stage in real life, as you guys can see. Obviously. I'm much more handsome on stage. You yeah, are. You got, you're, you got you're a presence. I mean, yeah, there's a charisma okay, here. Don't, don't flat. This is not the time for flattery. Let's be honest with each other. <laughs> what I really, what the worst part of the song, though, there is something that really was the worst part of the song for me, and that was when the chorus actually does step in. You get the wall of sound, and it's already just busy, and then it kicks it up a notch, and that is the opposite of endearing. What's the opposite of endearing? Th this chorus. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's just so much more of stuff I wasn't already enjoying. It tries to be positive and uplifting, but yeah. I admit it still just ends up being a little bit more busy. They add this one element, which was this squealing, like, high-pitched... A uh, violin, it's in the violin register at least, but it wasn't a violin, it's a synth, everything's a synth, and it just, it kind of squeals its way through this chorus, and I, I, I didn't know how to take it, it didn't come across to me as particularly beautiful, but it was another eyebrow raise, it was a curiosity, and I just felt that way about this track beginning to end, just a bunch of curiosities, I don't see content, and even when I look at the content, the lyrical content, I feel like it is constantly evading me, except for just that, you're putting on the good fight, you're putting on the fight, you've got the face for it today. The message, once again, and we experienced this early in the album, is very brief. Mm. It's a single line. Mm. And then the rest is just embellishment. Sure. And they do the same thing lyrically as they do musically. So, yeah, that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we had problems in this song, the next track, Dancephobia, I guess, uh, I'm supposed to pronounce every every letter in this made-up word. Dancephobia. I, this might be my least favorite thing in the entire album. It's yeah. one of my least favorite things year to date. No, <laughs> it's not been that long of a year yet. I know. I'm, I want to explain that. It hasn't been that long, but I may be able to revisit this in several months and say, yes, it still is my least favorite thing year to date. Dancephobia. It, it, it's so soulless. From the moment it starts, it feels soulless and predictable. It's just... No, no, it starts really nice. It mm. does. It's that hint of, ooh, ooh, mm. there's something there. No, no, I admit, there was, a goes, dis there was a disco groove in the very, very beginning. It takes about five seconds, and then it goes just deep club scene, and the most iconic of the deep club scene. All right, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here only because I feel that barring a lot of the stuff where I'm sure we're going to get to in the next couple minutes, I do think that the production quality, the production value on this song was pretty high. And I also do believe that if you drop this song, let's say in a Daft Punk album or the most recent Daft Punk album we looked at, which is already not too recent, episode 49, Random Excess Memories by Daft Punk. Check it out. That episode... Uh, I, I, we were completely immersed in the production value of every single track. It's a, it's, an, it's a pretty good album. We obviously are going to com be comparing Duran Duran with Daft Punk, probably on a lot of these tracks, because they seem to be, at least in a similar ballpark, when they want to do a good dance track, it at least serves that purpose. You can't argue that on the dance floor, this track would probably work. But if you try to look too deeply into it, as I'm sure we're wont to do, we have problems. Because they did, as John said, made up, made up this word. They make up this word called dancephobia, which is coming over you. It's coming over you. It's a, it's, a, it's a condition. And now here you are sitting at this table on the side of, let's say, a dance floor, and someone comes over you and tries to help you overcome this condition by dragging you out on the dance floor. And that person is Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> Well, we're going to wait for that. We're going to wait. Because there's a couple of problems I have before Lindsay No, I want to rip this off like a band-aid. I want to no, get no, no, to no, it. No, I want to no, address no, no, no. it. First, okay, we go deep, deep, deep club. And then a weird xylophone steps in. 
And then there's weird tapping on top of this that doesn't quite mesh with what's going on. And then the beat... It's, it's, sho- it's the showy, so I admit. Tro- it's no, no, showy. it's not even showy. It's by rote. The cymbal goes right after the kick drum, and that becomes the beat. And it's the thump, cha. It's, and it's the thump, bang, yeah, thump, crash. It's, it's the same thing it's steady that and it's you showy. first come up with when you're playing around with Fruity Loops. Steady, it's showy, but if you listen to it on headphones, it does have a really, really nice resonance to it. I will argue it at least on that level. But let's uh, please read the... the um, Can I... Mm, no. Please, I, no. Want, I want to make it better than so, it was. So, I just want to say, from, from Lindsay Lohan, we get the dancephobia diagnosis. Steve, if you please. Can you hear me? If you can hear me, let me know. I am your doctor. You may be experiencing feelings of confusion. Don't be afraid. I've seen these symptoms before. 10 to 20 new cases each week. We call this condition dancephobia. I'm going to bring you in for observation. I'll have to work on you throughout the night. We'll have to trust each other, and together, I think we can beat this thing before the music ends. Well, creepy. Well, no, Maybe no. I read it creepier. You did. But this no, is no, no, Landon. No. Le- this is Lindsay Lohan coming in to tell this to you over the course of a much pared-down version of this track. A lot of instruments just cut out so that she can sort of say this, and it sounds very deadened. I mean, as an uh, actress, it's, it's very just. She's bland. been through. She's been through a lot. Yeah, she has been through a lot. So maybe and we can talk sh- about that. She showed up late to this session. We know that, and she, <laughs> um, you know, she's she's been she's she's seen things. She's seen some things. Okay, well, yeah. but here's my issue: danceophobia is not a thing. So as a doctor, she's already discrediting herself. But there is a word I like. Partially because it was the Cage the Elephant album, and partially because it is a real freaking word, melophobia. Melophobia, which mm-hmm. is the same symbols and rhymes the same way, means fear of music. Mm. I love the imagery built around that word when you apply it to that sort of setting. Hmm. But being unable to carry a rhythm is just a guy thing. It's not a condition <laughs> or anything like that. And to be reading off like you're reading off the side effects of your newest prescription for hair cream or what have you is just really deadening me. I feel like I'm watching an infomercial for Cialis at this point. Also the case of being introverted in a club setting or just simply not being into it. I, I, I hate for the poor producer had to sit there as they're doing this and saying, okay, yeah, let's... Let's, right. lay, let's lay that in. <laughs> Do you think there was like a crash card next to her? She's so dead <laughs> reading this. It's ridiculous. But there, there's so many people who wanted to say no. Let's not do that, and they didn't. Either they said it and weren't listened to, or they, they just didn't say no at all. Yeah. And, it, and this is a terrible idea. And, it, and it's, it, it, it's really confusing as to how the casting call even really ended her up in this position. I will admit that maybe there's some there's some validation behind the deadened read only because I admit it's trying to come across clinical like well if it's a doctor your doctor is not going to you know put on a goofy face while he's telling you you have some kind of cancer life life threatening disease <laughs> where just, you can't dance but it, yeah yeah it's that's why <laughs> seriously dance you can't dance you can slow dance you're afraid of dancing entirely yeah yeah. All dancing. Case in point, I think the period at the end of the sentence and the end of this this track as a whole is like, it, it would work well on a comedy album. It would work well, let's say, if Flight of the Concords did this, if The Lonely Island did this. Then you, you wouldn't miss a beat, and this would just be a nice little satire of a track, which actually ends up working, I think, as a good dance track alongside, which is why I don't want to be too critical against this. It's just because none of us were context. expecting this. It's all none of us were expect- We had some serious themes that were presented earlier on this album, so why at this point should all of a sudden just everything be released? It- unless it is another one of those, like, 
cure all through dance kind of tracks mm. cure the earlier stuff with and, this let loose but but dj I, saved my life tonight yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so. i'm, I'm <laughs> kind of curious as to where the theme is headed in this album so far because we're sort of jumping back and forth paper gods presented one big mo- monumental idea and then last night in the city was the complete polar opposite of it just have fun and then we actually go into like a relationship kill you kill me with science pressure off face for today like these are kind of trying to pre- present some sort of like major idea and then we get danceophobia i mean I- i'm 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 getting lost here at this point yeah and musically we do the same thing we pivot a lot between really uh really serious uh textures and then also really light-hearted textures yeah. take for example the next track track seven what are the chances which features john frisante from uh formerly red hot chili formerly peppers. red hot chili peppers and and this this is an example of the serious air this is it begins with this like renegade southern gothic guitar solo in the beginning it's a little bit dour it feels like you know this is where the the, the troubles should start to come through if you're going to tell your troubles on stage in a more old-fashioned folk setting or or southern gothic guitar setting this is the one to do it in but you, you don't stay here very long because then the chorus livens it right back up again it's we have talked about this three well, times now it's not super livened it's still there's it feels a weird, like a ballad. It's still. got a weird twang to it. I would call it Southern synth. I mean, it still seems to harken back to a lot of the ideas All of right. more more easygoing Southern rock and folk than to just like electronica in general. All right, I'll admit it didn't really liven it up, but it does. It does. It's another one of those mismatched music. I feel like the the, the initial idea was kind of abandoned in, in lieu of something else. Well, that Southern Gothic start was kind of, I call it spoopy. Like, not quite spooky. So it's a little cute, a cuter version is spoopy. Go- please. We'll Gooby go with please. that. Yeah, like, it's, it's and I'm stealing Gooby. that a little bit from Markiplier, but it's the idea of something that on face value appears like it's trying to be scary, but it's kind of so cheesy it's not. And this is like, it's Southern Gothic but not like it, it's almost it and feels then, like it but you know what we get we start getting strings in this verse we start getting like really nice low end the drum second work. verse the yeah. second verse mm-hmm. especially I'm glad you brought that up because the yeah. spaciousness that had existed before during the southern gothic section is now filled up by a cello or, or an upright bass that's kind of just like plucking along it, it, that, that becomes the new bass line which is a new little bit of texture that I really liked again I'm all about the production value on this entire album it's just the, the experience of it even even though you may be a little bit down on the sectional uh, variances, the the actual the actual experience of it, I think, is still very pleasant. I'm, none of this is grating to my ear. There hasn't been a single track yet where I would just like completely shut off. There's just eye rolls. That's it. And a big eye roll comes as soon as this second verse is done because we go into the chorus, and while they don't depart, everything just gets thrown on top of those strings, on top of that really nice, easygoing drum, and it becomes pop again. It really just has a complete turnabout and runs away from what it was building to. Now, that build was kind of predictable. The crescendo that that happens at the end of that verse, I knew it was coming. I knew there was going to be a crescendo. I knew something big was going to happen. But the big it went into was definitely something I would... Not that I wasn't prepared for it. I just really... It was typical of other songs in some ways. I think there was a sense of searching in this song, a sense of searching for something, and um, maybe that was as true to the to the theme as it was to the music. Um, but it definitely left me wanting on some on some level. Uh, actually, I, I I pre-anticipated what you were about what you were referencing, John. The strings that I think you were thinking of really were in the chorus. They were there in the verse too, but that was for um 
uh, in the bass line. But yeah, there yeah. was a, a, a really beautiful, like, uh, it even sounded a little bit Asian at times, like this like Asian instrument I always forget, but there's that guy, he always plays it in the subway, that one <laughs> stringed instrument, it's a single string, and it's really, really, you know, got that Asian sound. I don't know. You'll it's, put it in the comments later. We'll put it in the comments later. But that was really here, through to the end of this song. It was a nice element, and I, it, it made me really, really want to care about the song in a deeper sense, but there was something that it was just, it felt fake grand. Well, also, mm. even when we got John Frusciante's solo uh, in the song, you know, it was fleeting, which I think is kind of how the whole track was. You know, everything that we got that we liked that was kind of a nice moment was very fleeting. And even when John Frusciante's solo comes in, it's intricate and it's interesting for while it's there. because it's the strings again. Because it's John Frusciante and he's a great guitarist. But... It's what thirty it seconds, it forty seconds. It was buried because it. Well, it did but it was progress. fleeting too because it wasn't very long. No, it did actually progress into the first of the two closing choruses. I guess it was I, there. It was hardly noticeable. Exactly, and that's where a lot of my complaints are coming in this song. Is the things I wanted to notice were just so hard to dig out of mm. everything else. It was mixed very well for what was in the forefront, and that's where I'm going to refute this. This what you just said, Steve. Here in this track. The choruses did the exact opposite of what you've been lauding on this album. They didn't really balance the the through lines very well because I wasn't I wasn't hearing the more intricate and the more magical parts to my at least to my liking. All right, well that's fair. I, I I'm I, I was almost, a, I almost I was don't even want to bother the chorus. reading these lyrics, but I am going to read just a couple stanzas here, really quick. Uh, verse one: Any other day, and you might have gone walking by without a second look. Any other way, but I'm still mystified. I'm just trying to change my luck, staring out of the world and waiting for the one. But the world won't look away. The world does not explain. Chorus. So what are the chances? We'll never know. If we take it for granted, a diamond explodes. What are the chances? I, I don't. Diamond explodes. It's all over the place. It's all over the I'm, place. I, because a diamond is a very hard material, but honestly, he should have done a little more research. It's fairly easy to fracture if you apply the pressure the right much, way. Explosions much. are not unheard of. I mean, it can cut very well, but if you take yeah. it at the wrong angle, you can just that, shatter that, it. That, that little metaphor comes out of nowhere. In yeah, yeah, diamonds in the rough. I, I mean, I mean yeah. Yeah, right. no, a lot of this, it and, just seems like... Everything else is sliding doors. Everything else is like, what are the chances? And, mm-hmm. and and if you had if you had stopped, if you had walked by, but all of a sudden a diamond explodes. That's that's, that's middle school level poetry. That's Michael <laughs> Bay writing. right That there. is Michael Bay. Oh. A fucking diamond I, explodes. But man. sometimes you need explosions. <laughs> except I not didn't, here. I didn't actually. This is the first explosion. I wasn't a big fan of. Definitely not I mean, here. Yeah. All right. Sunset Garage, track eight. Garage. Um, Sunset. This garage. Garage. Yes. Garage. Garage. Yes. garage. Garage. Um, this one's Pronouncing. featuring Holly Cook. And uh, it starts, it's the first time a song really starts with a soundbite. It's the soundbite of a car driving away at high speed on gravel. And, like, yeah, I don't know. It, I was like, okay, this is different. We haven't gotten that on the whole album. But it's so cliche for dance music well, to have a soundbite. Based on that, well, nah, not necessarily. I disagree with that. But, but based on that soundbite and based on the title, I feel like of all the times... Uh, Matt, that we have actually visualized that that driving down sunstrip, yeah. s- sunset strip feeling. I expected that here. And we didn't get that instrumentally, really. But we do have that flip side, because after all, it's sunset garage, if we're going to go with that. that. That's like... 
on one hand, you have the grandeur of driving down the highway, and on the other hand, you have, like, the dankness of just sitting idly in your garage. Yeah, I um, mean, we, we had talked about how the verses kind of had an ambiguity sound-wise. We couldn't really place where it was yeah. from. But a garage is not also, it's not just the thing attached to your house where your car sits. Yeah. It's also a parking garage. It's also a place that looks over the, over the hills of L.A. or it's, it's, it's something that has a sunset to it, you know? It's a, yeah. it's a junk place in many ways. Like, mm. every other... There's a lot of things that get thrown in garages, not just your personal <laughs> ones, but in general. I mean, it's it's things just get left there. But it mm. clearly, yeah, it clearly seems to be like he wanted to drag it down a little bit, yeah. you know, drag this down a peg. And in, in the chorus, whatever happens, we're okay. Hey, we're still alive to watch a sunset garage day. Got me saying garage. <laughs> it just sounds weird. That's how he says it. Sounds it sounds weird. That's how I know. He says it, I know. I'm not gonna say it. I'm American. <laughs> 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 to watch a sunset garage day. Head into the light. Oh, oh, with that all goes wrong, we're going to make it on our own. I promise us a garage day. Oh. What's a garage day? <laughs> a day when you hang out. I mean, if, if he's talking about a band, like, it's the day you're practicing well, in I the garage. I don't know what it means, yeah. but it's not provocative. We, we, we were talking about Weezer earlier, and the blue album, In the Garage. Yeah, there you go. And that's a yeah, but song. I understand what that means. I get that, but that, but that was using that this kind of this French word that we, we, we think is kind of a base thing, but we... we it it has some meaning, you know. A, a garage means something to us. It it does, as you were saying. It's a place you yeah. leave something. It's a place you store something. It's a it's a place where you find things. But I mean, that there's let, no. Let me let me search no for context here. Verses no, one and two. Okay, keep Verses looking. one and two. So halfway drunk, you'd never seen with your big eye, punk fashion fingernails, something cooking when you play guitar. What a steak we're in. How did we get so far? Verse two. See how the town comes out, like a bruise, when the wheels go round. We can do anything, nobody looking. And then six more come, maybe later, later. Could take it up from here. It sounds if, like a am band. Am I any closer to this? It sounds like a band practicing and then getting bigger well, that or it? something. It, 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 no, this, no, it, you're reaching here. But this yeah. is and a I reach. song that is, we talked about, it's, it's a 1960s song. This is the Ronettes. Yeah, all right, let's, is, let's get back to music here because the yeah. lyrics are not helping me They're in this instance. Else, um, with that, I, I missed all that by listening just to the fun of this song being a sort of a 60s kind of strange little throwback, right. you know. That, that's, that's the strange thing here. In the chorus, it re- like, I didn't get this in the verse at all. In the verse, it sounded modern, and didn't, you could just accept it as a modern, almost an indie rock track. But then by the chorus, it really takes its cues from the 60s in a very, like, upbeat 60s folk song. Like, they're on Ed Sullivan Theater, and you can see it. It has the pep, it has the beat, it has the, the background singers, uh, even, like, the, the mixing effect of it. I've found this a few times in some of the work that we've done, where we come across that, that effect of actually being recorded in an old theater by by old microphones. It's it's got that to it. I uh, even the bass I, I felt was even most similar to that, and it was one of the best parts about the song because yeah, the bass wasn't lost. The bass was the most dynamic element. So it was spacey. Don't look for content. Like... Don't look for melodies. Don't look for the lyrics at all. <laughs> look to the, <laughs> look to the bass. Actually, one other piece that was really grating on me was that abrasive pseudo horn. I, I just could not yeah. enjoy that noise. That was just odd. That was even. Odder than what but, we experienced earlier. But bass, oof. And this is where I pointed out that, well, listen, we're this deep into the album and that this is a this is Duran Duran, and this is proudly artificial and surface. I mean, that, but proudly so. It, that, it, that's it, a really good way of putting it, too. Yeah. The artificial horn, which bothered me, too, is just, that's what they do. This is what this world is, is that it's a shiny, glossy surface. 
I, linoleum. And see, that, that speaks to the production element that I was talking about earlier. If I, if I could just look at that, then I think this album would be a wonderful experience because it is, yes, it is, it is proudly artificial and they do well with that. They do mm. amazingly with that. But from the structural point of view, uh, we have some more issues, the f- back and forth between what they choose to reference at times, and and uh, let's go halfway through the track here, because this is another strange reference, especially following the 60s segment. Um, uh, this is deep into the track, or comparatively speaking, 2 minutes, 53 seconds, we get something very different. They turned this track into a kind of slow jam. I'm not even sure if there were lyrics here. This may have been an entire instrumental. It was. But it, it was sounded a, like, like a, a breakdown. Psych- yeah. Like a psychedelic slow jam. It was surprising. And taken by itself yeah i really really dug it it just sounded like they graduated from the 60s into the 70s mm-hmm. and i didn't know what to make of that i didn't know what <laughs> is that was that intentional i just i mean obviously it, it didn't fit in the slightest it's, te- it's telegraphed i'm sure they're they went around long enough that it wasn't like oh here let's throw in a thing like I, i'm guessing that that transition was t- telegraphed but still it does feel well, a little how, no, divorced no. the base they telegraph still- it they didn't preview any of this stuff in this track or in, in in the previous tracks it was really not hinted at i like it i really do might have been telegraphed from the previous album, but we're not doing that album. We're doing mm-hmm. this album. Eh, I'll try to be. I'll try to be on the positive side here, because at the end of the day, I liked the segment. If I took it by itself, it would be. It would be pretty neat. It was. Still, it was the bass. The bass, again. The bass yeah. gets better. You have a lot of like piano rolls in the upper register, which gave it a lot of uh, like Pink Floydian pizzazz, if that makes any sense. Um, and then finally, by the the bridge. It has the feel of earlier in the beginning of the song now, but this time I noticed that it actually transitioned more to a minor chord, where it had been more uplifting earlier. It had been on major. They they transposed that to minor, and that was kind of a clever move because it it led this this uh, this psychedelic slow jam out into this bridge section better than it was actually led into. In other words, it's that case of of. However separate these ideas may have been, they worked it in, they worked harder at the transition, the retransition, rather than the initial transition. And in that instance, I kind of, yeah. I had no problems with this track, really, from that psychedelic section onward. It was from just, B to A was great, but A to B was just a, just mm-hmm. a, just a kick in the Bingo. face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From here we go to track nine, Change the Skyline, featuring, you're going to have to read that one for me. Jonas Bjerre. She, he's he's Danish, so he, it's Bjerre. He's actually the um, front man for the band Mew, M-E-W, think the Pokemon. Uh, uh, not the symbol M-U. Right. I mean, We're thinking the Pokemon or the sound a cat makes, Mew. <laughs> Take sure. Um This song, actually the first time I think on the whole album we get some kind of almost relentless 80s synth. Like it's, this was... it's so of the time that I expect Duran Duran to be there in. are I, this is this is referencing something very specific because it's referencing actually like like a kind of narrative of the time like Miami Vice there yeah, are wrote, badasses oh, on man. scene Archer Vice even yeah. like from I, the, car- I, the cartoon like I pictured that I wrote Detective X enters the club that's how this <laughs> track starts that's good it feels so much like that not it, it's it's not noir, but it's eighties noir. It in is a lot somewhat. Of ways. It is a someone's theme, a specific character, and you feel this character in mm-hmm. some sense just through the synth alone. And I thought that was a pretty uh, neat trick. At least we now have something to pin to this track and the album. Well, maybe not the album as a whole, but at least here in this moment, 
Um, and the verse maintains the same riff. They keep it going. They don't just abandon it this time. They, they persist with it. And then the pre-chorus really revs up this energy as well. But my big problem with this song is, like you say, that it's a, a, a nice trick, but I feel like they showed their cards too early, and then that's it. Because the oh. thump comes in and gets heavier, and it almost starts to feel relentless. Like the synth, I don't mind the tones the synth is making, but once the heavy thump of the drum machine comes in and it kind of gets relentless through the verse and chorus, I'm kind of just getting distracted. Okay, that's true. They persisted with it, but they did kind of keep on layering with They didn't mm -hmm. abandon the idea, but they didn't really turn it into something fresh. Yeah. These are really fine lines. I know we're being picky here. Well, but I, it's, it's the fact that the for me, I know uh, you two don't really see the disconnect, or you three, excuse me, man. I forgot. <laughs> He's used to saying you two yeah, because yeah. we don't agree. Well, with I usually him. disagree oh, with these. You two. don't know how I feel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it, it's you, it's. I feel a disconnect between the chorus and the verses because the verses really do feel like two separate ideas on a track, and honestly, the part A, part A prime nature of the verse does feel like it's a verse chorus to me musically because when the actual chorus steps in. It really does feel separate because I only thing I really see going for it is a melody that's very backdrop, that's very hard to discern, and the beat, and the relentless beat, the beat that we were complaining about all last week. Okay, maybe I, maybe you might have convinced me on that count. The chorus was more separate than maybe I'm giving it credit for. And also the melody uh, here, since you brought up the melody, it sounded almost out of tune at times. Now, mm -hmm. I, I realize this may have been an artistic choice, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that the, the singing in the chorus was really slow and almost like it lends itself to becoming out of tune very easily by singing so slow and sounding so separate between uh, left and right panning. But they go, I can change the skyline, out of range but in time. Time to change the skyline, icy far horizons. Now I was racking my brain to think what change the skyline was. I think we I all know, were. I know what it means. Oh? It means I'm moving cities. I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, that's, oh, that's nice. That is so obvious. I, I didn't one. think of that. Yeah, that's so much better. One. It took me a little bit. I was having a cigarette outside. Jesus and I was like, God. Yeah, because God. also, yeah, you think we about it. We have this guy that's, for something. That's, that's, he has a purpose. <laughs> John has so a purpose. right now. Um, but yeah, but no, I mean, actually, really look at it. I see far horizons. It's like looking that's, towards the future. That's so much better. Than changing honestly, the cityscape. I was more like manipulating space, time, controlling my universe. This is so dark, but all I could think of was 9-11. Oh, I could think of. That's not nice. That's no. Not that's Ooh, not good. That's not. That no, it's, it's not that dark. Oh. It doesn't go No, I, I, I think I, I thought that subconsciously. Yeah, like, you the did. Skyline, the skyline, it will never look the same I again. I said what you were thinking subconsciously, but he went with a beautiful, hopeful thing of yeah. changing cities. Changing cities, you trying to change your... morbid... We're horrible, morbid, horrible people. Morbid, horrible yes, people. Okay. Yeah, we should be. We should be shamed. Shamed by society. Yeah. Um, then again, it's not a very... John gets a star. Yeah, it's only available in the chorus. The verses don't really speak to it. You're opening my eyes maybe it's not impossible and don't you think it's time because i've waited long enough well without the course to explain all of that that means nothing yeah but that's not that's not unnatural for a track like they'll be a little vaguer in the verse it's the it's the the minor events that lead up to the big event which is his ultimate move because he feels that's what he has yeah, to do that's not super Change. foreign but and it's, it's, like... it's actually something very healthy that's and you're completely turning me around this track just from that on that message alone because that's a very healthy thing to do is just change up the scenery even if it's something minor you don't have to go to another scene uh, another city necessarily but like change up 
what you see in the course of your day. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're in your house too much, then you need to go on a walk. Or if you're going on a walk in the same direction all the time, and that's part of your commute, change that direction. Go on a different direction because it'll actually affect your brain chemistry and you will be mentally improved as a result. Because mm-hmm. just by seeing new things, then it can get you over certain humps, certain ruts. It'll do things subconsciously that you never dreamed. Well, then I'm going to stare a little bit too hard at this track and go, hey, well, that's why the chorus is so disconnected from the verse because he's changing it so harshly and everything like that. Except this time, I don't even believe myself. Dude, I just want to say, have you guys always been this into lyrics, or can I take credit for this? For this, no, that's album? my. It's been my job. Can I, can but I, can I'm, I, can I'm, I say that I've changed? You, can, you, you have definitely pointed out more in this particular album okay. than we would have three of Thank us you. separately. All right, I, I love looking at, I love, I'm looking, at, looking at crap music and finding the beauty in it. Like, yeah, and finding like, what, what are the. I mean, words? that's actually a great way of looking at it. What finding beauty and yeah. stuff. Yeah. What's the word? What are the words that they used? Words. So, you know. Yeah. No. And now that we got that out of the way, let's go to Butterfly Girl, track ten, um, which. Man, I don't really even have that much to say about the song other than it was the busiest track so far on the album. Which is disappointing considering there have been other cacophonous moments that I still found something in that I got really into. But this, it's just like, I feel like from the moment it started, it's just like, here's some noise. It did feel also like one of the first tracks that actually did borrow a little element of the previous track. Just to kind of create a musical through line. It had a similar badass feel, like that kind of character theme going for it. It was also a little bit more bass driven. And it seemed like... Like, there was more of a storyline here. I feel like in many ways this is also perhaps closest to their original 80s work. Um, let's look at a little bit of lyrics here first before we get into the, the music because I actually kind of like the music a little bit better than the previous track. By the look on your face, you've been awake all night. It started raining the early light. You're fooling the mirror, but you don't fool me, adrift in your own sympathy. Can't stand falling apart. Don't stay too long in the dark. Alone deep in the dark of your devotion. Let go of the love that he stole. Let go. You gotta let go to get back in control of your emotion. Those lyrics are so poetic. Well, I don't get that from the listening to the track. Yeah. Nothing. But uh, see what I mean by the storyline feel? Yeah. It's more of an. It almost seems like there's more of a moral here rather than yeah. the semi obscurities we oh, got earlier. For but, sure. Yeah. But here's here's the thing: the imagery used in the words and the imagery of just the butterfly girl. Butterflies are not rapid, busy beings. Historically, they're beautiful, or graceful. Yeah, they flutter slowly. They, 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 they ride the currents. They go and drink from flowers, and then go and make lay eggs. And they spend half their lives in a chrysalis, not moving, being turned into butterflies. They don't promote rapid motion. So why is the rapid motion so heavy-handed here? Ah, you're being a little too critical there. Come on, no, it is, no, it is no. simply, simply on the level that the butterfly will burgeon into something beautiful. It doesn't matter the amount of time that it takes. It is simply that and that alone, and that's why the the, the comparison is pretty apt. Because of course the chorus is, "You can make it through tomorrow. Set free your butterfly girl, and when you rise above the sorrow, you'll be a butterfly girl." And it, I found it interesting that this actually very closely reminded me to a song that has. A very similar message. It reminded me of Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive from back in the 70s, despite the fact that really the background vocalists, and you pointed out this out to me, Matt, guess Matt, you pointed this out that we, um, that this was more of a 90s atmosphere, really, mm-hmm. like early 90s R&B, which mm-hmm. I think is more appropriate. For some reason, my brain just went to the 70s because you had a similar kind of background yeah. group female uh, of chorus vocalist. And, and it's in that song, I Will Survive. I Will Survive. Um, and overcome these obstacles, a kind of like also burgeoning out and getting past this, and uh, it seems to be the equivalent message. So it helps apparently to have female choruses if you want to uh, feel better about yourself. This had a Whitney Houston on Vogue sound. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, like early early nineties R and B. 
Yeah. yeah. But the, the lyric that killed me, and this was one, what, what is it? Uh, one kind of happy in that glass of wine. Yes, there's only one. Now, now you're drunk in the dream of your life as dirt. It might last forever, and that really hurts. And I still hope you're going to realize there's only one kind of happy in that glass of wine. Fantastic. It's fantastic because, of course, everyone knows that this is the kind of writing that really reaches out because it says so much in so little. That embodies alcoholism, essentially. Right. But, but again, all of these messaging, this messaging that we're getting from reading the lyrics, I just didn't get listening. What I heard instrumentally that buried kind of the, the lyrics was a really bizarre guitar work layered over busy music. And yeah. then in the choruses, this kind of chorus, this all-woman chorus did feel very 90s, but also felt kind of cliche, especially within the structure it was creating. Yeah, I, just, I, I didn't really I didn't get anything from it. It wasn't even an emotional change as well. Like no. it didn't it didn't step it up or bring it down or it didn't soften or harden or anything. It just kind of sidestepped the theme that the yes. that the verse was doing and went off in a tangential direction and came back into what it originally was doing in the verse. Right. It it's it's more of a bump here than than an actual growth of the, of the music, and that really bothered me. This is also the third track where we experience some kind of strange, warbling, warped solo instrument. This had this like guitar that sounded like it was dying. It sounded like it was in the midst of just this this utter despair, which was strange contrasted against the rest of the track, which was still very fairly uplifting. Um, but it was it's another solo, and apparently, whenever they do solos in this album, it can't be traditional. I to be honest, that's a perk for me because like, we've had so many traditional solos that it's like I feel like it was either expected or it was shoehorned. At least in these cases, as odd as they are, they are different. They don't follow the melody normally. That would be that would be uh, to its detriment but frankly I, I I think it's the only standoutish thing really on this album from a musical perspective is just the solo the solo instruments they are they, there's something new there's something I never hear really hmm. I mean that's that's not a terrible point I, th- I, think, I think it's just an element of the song it's just a component but you know point <laughs> very, very positive way to put it I, I found honestly as, as a, not a musician uh, some of the solos that we were talking about I found them kind of lost and muted and sort of like uh yeah there are context problems but it, it was it was interesting it's just that i found them kind of like i, I couldn't even take it in as a solo almost you yeah know, it was it was so not um i don't know left to itself you know it was sort of muddied by everything else around it no i i, I agree that's <laughs> context is the biggest problem with yeah. those solos so uh yeah it's not worth overstating let's go to track 11 only in dreams so this has, and, and Steve said, it, it either sounded like or was a quartet, you know, a, a, a strings Maybe here. even more than a quartet. It almost sounded like a full orchestra, but it had the air of a requiem. It just felt really o- ominous, and the second time on the album we truly feel kind of dramatic, and it's just... It's interesting. It, it, it lends me to believe that this is trying to be like the intro track was, you know? Have this kind of air to it that, that is adding something beyond just dance. But the vocals kind of drew me out of it. That was the one thing, and I haven't had many complaints, because the vocals haven't been particularly standout-ish, but they haven't been particularly like detrimental to the music itself. Here, the range, 
the register that we're dealing with vocally it doesn't quite mesh what's going on in this introduction. But me. there's a reason for that. The reason for that is because very shortly after, the song does shift to a more funk sound and has this strut and attitude that wasn't present in the intro. And I think the lyrics are matching that. And, I, I and was I was going to go with that. Oh, are you? Thank you, thank you for stealing <laughs> my thunder. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Here, here's your thunder, John. Do you want it back? I stole it. I got my thunder back. This may be one of my favorite tracks on the album. Because it's really great, yeah. yeah. It, it, it seems to have pulled off all things well and all things effortlessly. Um, the strings in the beginning, they don't really leave, but they do get bolstered, I think, by the funk later on, which, mm -hmm. which seems strange. It almost seems like that would be a departure, but everything really worked together. Particularly in the strings, I liked the voice leading. The, just the composition from one chord, one drawn-out chord to the next was very fluid and very immersive. And then there are moments amidst the primary melody where they get so incredibly dense. The, like the, the orchestra, I, I, not knowing exactly how many instruments are at play here or whether they are real instruments at all because this is, after all, Duran Duran. Still, there are lots of components that you hear and they seem like they're developing like ninth chords, eleventh chords. It might have been an eleventh chord that I was hearing here, a minor eleventh. And it just, it, it was so dense. Lots of short intervals in order to create that chord. It wasn't spread out. It wasn't block. It was just this amazing uh, uh, climactic moment to me personally for the album. It was my favorite moment on this album um, because it's, it's it transcended everything else that we'd heard up to this point. Normally, uh, from verse to chorus, we've been getting things that aren't difficult to decipher from a musical standpoint. You pick out the melody, that's fine. You, it's, you can find a soaring phrase, that's fine. But specific moments where all instruments are combining just to give you this this wholesome feel in in one instant. That's what this track did. Wow, <laughs> I'm impressed with how verbose Steve was about this track. <laughs> he was clearly it's a, it's a good track. Yeah, it's no, really, yeah. The dreamlike quality. I mean, it's in the title, but it works so well with what's being said because it the lyrics become a hodgepodge. They become like more train of thought or or even derailed trains of, trains of thought because there's a lot of different angles that get tackled here one of my favorite lines only in dreams i'm in dopamine time it's in my genes it gets extreme only in dreams how did i dream you you're the queen of steel dunes look at what you've done my colors run whenever you come to and it kind of ends right there and goes into the chorus, the funky chorus. The I think this is a sort of I chorus. Mean, obviously, it's a dream. It's, I think it's a fantasy. I don't think any of this is real. And I think that's mm. why it sounds just so fanciful as it does, because I think it's some kind of climactic uh, extreme that maybe he desires but will not never reach. Maybe that's reading too far into it, but uh, come on, only in my dreams? And You're then, never going to get there. And then as the song progresses, we get one section that I, I like to call the deep drum section, which is <laughs> nice and deep and muted percussion, that, that pillow percussion, but this time done very well because there's no driving kick drum bothering me this week. And it's just such, uh, uh, like that, those moments before you wake up. And then it goes into sort of a section that gets kind of 8-bitty, that gets kind of almost glitchy in its mm. use of the synthesizer. Yeah, well, that, that was a moment that Steve pointed out to me that I thought was odd, but I couldn't place it. You said that the chromatics there were like these odd notes. Yeah, that was a weird little... little. It's the only thing in this track that I actually am going to criticize just because it was just so strange. It was like this... Um, it was just octaves. Like if you were to take your, you know, your hand on the piano, just single hand, you spread apart the thumb and the picky, and then you reach the same exact pitch, and then you just start going pinky thumb picky thumb as you rise up from each note black black key white key black key white key and just do 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 and it's like kind of like a spider like curling on the piano it's essentially what this little synth element was doing very weird 
Very weird. I'm and, okay but with it, that. It, it, but it was in such. It, it's it's so goofy, and you're right. It is eight bit sound. Now that I now I realize what you what you were talking about. It, it's so separate from everything else, and it lasts for five seconds. So it's not a big like minus mark on the song. I just didn't I didn't I didn't see the purpose. There were some other lines on the rooftop. We can feel the drop. She bathes in the moon while the shadows watch. I should be nervous, but my eyes forget. I don't want to wake up. I'm not gonna wake up. I don't want to wake up. Did, did, I, why can't we get this imagery all the time? I mean, we've had a couple of complaints with the lyrics on here being a little too on the nose. This is nicely shrouded, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. still definitive in its idea. And the last thing I, w- I do want to reference here is also the three-minute mark, which I, I forget whether you had uh, mentioned before, but this was the, the sort of spacey interlude. Yeah, we touched um, on yes, it a little the, bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah I this, wanted you this to was, it. Okay, well, fair enough. I, I mean, if, if you talk about it, you talk about it. But this I, this was just another one of my favorite elements of this particular track, even maybe more so than the strings earlier, but eh, kind of on par. It's like a bass is being plucked so hard that it loses its ability to vibrate quickly, and it bends slightly downward in pitch in the process. The mixing once again is just it's so amazing and yet so strange it kind of has this effect that the bass is coming from behind you not unlike uh in uh it's in i am the walrus and the beatles where you actually feel like the thing is raising like a balloon after toward the to the tail end of the track it's a really cool mixing effect uh which i don't commonly see done even though i'm sure most producers out there know how to do it and yet i don't hear it a lot and it really made this track seem immersive they made it sound 360 degree one last point I also want to make um, is and it take, t- talking about what Steve had mentioned about the changes and all of the interesting things that the song does. It also doesn't feel its length. You know, the previous track, which was on the shorter side for the album anyway, and I kind of got tired quickly. This one was closer to six minutes long. I think a little more than six minutes long. And it, it also reminded me of the intro track as where as because it changed it up so much and did so many interesting things, I didn't feel its length. I just, I was invested in it the whole time and I I could have stayed there probably longer. You know, I just liked what this was doing and I was curious about the growth. And what's disappointing is that this isn't the final track. If they ended the album on this, I think it'd be a pretty palpable and powerful ending, but it's not. Yeah, for the, right. for, for the stuff that kind of started losing us in the middle, this would have been, it's referencing the beginning. That's the whole it thing. Right. Made, it would have made right. the album very cyclical and, and, and poignant, but instead we get track 12, <laughs> The Universe Alone. And I, I don't know. Okay, well, okay, so. wait, wait, wait. I, I know how to explain this. This is the finale track. And I don't mean for this album or for in general. I mean, this is the track that is trying its best to explain the finale of the universe. I don't hate this track. I actually liked a lot of elements of it. But I don't like the concept behind this track. And I think that's <laughs> what you were getting at. Right. The, the idea that this is supposed to be so big and so expansive that it is the grand period at the end of the great sentence that was this album. Right. Or Duran Duran. Like, that's what it's, it, this feels like this should be the end of their career in many ways because they're talking about the destruction of the universe. We are not saying that universe. Duran Duran should No, I'm quit. not saying, don't, no. don't quit. You made some real good music on this album in places. But, <laughs> but, it's just the way everything sort of culminates with this. They're, they're capitalizing epic finale with well, so with, let's, with all cats. It's, it's, let's talk instrumentation here. Let's actually get all right, into it's, the music. It's a little bit gaudy in the sense that I feel like this track maybe could have benefited from some more chord changes to warrant the fact that we do get a lot of mysterious, albeit gorgeous, 
uh, strings again, mm -hmm. and this this time perhaps in the grandest sense of all, in in uh, in the biggest way. We get lots of strings, full on orchestra that really overtake his melodies, and it sounds pretty incredible. Even in the very beginning, I love the fact it's kind of got this chromatic downward progression. It sounds like it is almost falling out of tune. So there's a lot of stuff going on here in the beginning, but once again, they kind of persist with this, and then they throw in. Uh, I feel I I hate saying this, but this is actually my least favorite element of the track, the funk. Mm. Coming from me, that's incredible. Because in, in <laughs> well, every single instance, about how much in every funk, single yeah. instance, funk has saved just about every single track I've ever looked at. It, it it steps in and it's like, great. Well, at least I can enjoy this track now. There's funk here, <laughs> but here they went for something grander. They started off with this this um, amazing structure. They decided, no, we're gonna flat out compose this. This is this is gonna be really really big. And then a minute thirty in, we get that funk guitar, which. I appreciate the fact that they're blending it with lots of other tracks on this album, which had funk. So sure, they're being consistent for the album. But of all the places, to, to just ditch it, it would be the finale. This would be the moment in which no, they yeah. should spend time on that on that orchestral, you know, give me a B section, make the orchestra do something else. Well, it also, it, the, the biggest problem beyond that too is that then we get into the cliches that you're talking about. And, you know, from... from well, I hate to say the funk became a cliche of its own. But. Well, yeah, but then even beyond that, when it shifts to dance and funk and then goes beyond that, that starts to blend together and then we get the... toward. I don't want to skip to the end yet. I, I'll focus on the shifting to dance. This funk section just... It doesn't feel as dancey as other tracks, but it's dancier than this track was. And I feel like it's hanging in this middle area. Exactly. That's and great. It, that's exactly it the really problem. killed we me. We all concur. But, right. but you know what? Actually, I'm going to jump to the end really quickly. They do hororable, horrible cliches even as we go further, like the chorus of angels, these oh, beautiful had, vocals. No, no, we had chorus of angels before. They're bringing it back. Well, I mean, yeah, but it wasn't so blatantly, this is, here's a, a moment in the outro, we're going to sing isolate, you out. Isolate the angels. Yeah. It's just, oh, like God. before when we had the female I gotta, vocalists. I, I got to stand on the line here. In another album and in um, other places and different storylines and other contexts, this would be really well composed. It just didn't feel but right it, for this album. It is so shoehorned into not just this track, but this album. That I, I, again, if they, if they, if I thought they did that in the beginning of this track with the strings, the angelic outro is just. How much do you think of yourself? You know, yeah. how much did you think this album was really? Uh, it's just, a dance it, album. It Come just on. It feels odd for the narrative that's been created here, for the type of music they've mostly been doing on the whole album, even with these bigger moments. These chorus of angels. If it was at the end of the previous track, only in dreams, I probably wouldn't have questioned it. Uh -huh. It just didn't make. Duran Duran goes Gregorian. Forget all the other stuff that was going on in the album content-wise. This is so downer, too. It starts, it's beautiful, the dying sun, the end of everything and everyone. So shall we make a clan, my friend, as if we have the chance to live it all again? Oh, yeah, that's sweet. Except the universe is imploding. Exploding, I don't know. which Whichever one it's going to do, we're, we're hitting the heat death. I mean, he just and decided... It just goes on and on. Next lifetime. We can't fix this lifetime. It has to be next lifetime. He decided to make this so existential toward the it's very end here. Bizarre. We've only it's had, just an odd shift. We've had shades of this throughout the album. True. We've but had metaphors, not existential crises. 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 <laughs> and there's a lot of S's Whatever. involved there. But it's just depressing. It's just <laughs> depressing. And it's angelic, so it's I, super I didn't, depressing. I, I wasn't depressed in the slightest, only because he did not... He did not take me there, mm, like yeah. over the course. Well, yeah, there was fun. And frankly, if I came out of this depressed, that would have been something. That would have yes. been a feeling. Yeah, I felt and I nothing. Didn't, I felt nothing. Yeah, exactly. 
I think that's that's the best way to sum up this track. No, no. Well, I felt nothing. I, but I hate that to be the last word on this album. Well, well no. it, it won't be. Look, these guys, these are human beings who worked very hard on an album. That's way more than what I did. <laughs> well, have ever done. You came here and talked talk snarkily I about it. I did do that. I came here and talked snarkily about someone else's hard work and said that I felt nothing. However, there, I, I, there were a couple of tracks that I definitely felt something, and that was only in dreams. Welcome. You kill me with silence. Welcome right. to being a critic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it grand? Well, let's get to the monologues. All four of us are going to go on what we said. Anybody want to start? Anyone uh, volunteer? I think the, you speaking up first, volunteers first. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, All right. okay. Okay. Um, I think that I, coming from a position where I did not know Duran Duran's work as a band, came into this with very little expectations. Barring what I said in the beginning, how I hated Hungry Like the Wolf. I understand. It's one track. And it's, it's the big single. Whoever likes the big single. But this did come across as an album that showed a band that has been around since 1978. They grew with the times. That's pretty incredible. Um, we did kind of see shades of this last week. We did say that about Rob Thomas, but he's been at it since the 90s. They've been at it since 1978. It is a bigger feat, I think, on their part, considering the age here also, over 60, I believe, for the lead singer and, and some of the members. I do think this evolved into a modern album. It's not a great album. I don't mean to be so simplistic about that, but it, it covers... It covers disparate themes that are loosely under the umbrella of the same theme, which is this kind of existential crisis. And it feels weird saying that because we never would have used the term until the last track. But you can see in various other positions on this album where he's talking about how, let's say, an, an argument went, da with, went down and the whole concept of passive aggression. And then he always seems to bring these little disparate concepts back to the idea of how he's going to live his life in the broad as a result and what the next step is for him. And I feel like that becomes more of the core theme of this album. You just really got to strain for it. You got you to gotta read the lyrics. It's the only thing to do if, if you want to arrive at that theme. Musically, uh, <laughs> musically, I don't think I would have thought anything if I had not read these lyrics. I just would have thought dance album through and through. And combining a dance album with this, like, deeply existential afterthought is really strange. Maybe it's just a way of saying, well, that's the only way to deal with life. We did, after all, get danceophobia, which kind of says it all in one, even as, as odd as that was, it almost validates the track. So, I think he knew what he wanted. I just think the presentation was a little bit weak. I think that in each case, there are ideas that he presented in which he could have gone further with. Every single time he introduces the strings, they're just there. They broach really interesting moments, like for instance, the second to last track, which is easily my favorite, only in my dreams. And then shortly after that, strangely enough, a, sec a close second is the first track, the very first track, which as a seven minute intro, really set up high expectations for this album. But I think that's where they dug their grave because after that, it's a long haul to try to figure out this album as you go. I think in the end, this lands very comfortably in slightly above average territory. I think this is around a 3.5. It introduces really, really cool things, but it there there you got there's a lot of waiting that you're going to have to do in the interim. For me, so much of this album kind of glossed over what was going on around it. It, it just doesn't make a very heavy impact with very few exceptions. Same one Steve mentioned. Track 1, track 11. 
that lack of impact and my complaint about the theme earlier is only accessible in taking apart that final track and viewing it as an existential crisis because otherwise the theme is just bits of conflict throughout but that actually does a discredit to the album as a whole because that last track is so hard to get a hold of musically for the rest of the album so I'm looking at it well it it creates a theme but it hurts the music and if we remove it well you help the music but you kind of lose the theme it's a crux that it's just weird that it teeter-totters on that idea and this whole album kind of does the same thing it teeter-totters on the ideas that it presents it doesn't know if it wants to be funk it doesn't know if it wants to be disco if it doesn't know if it wants to be old school rock or Pink Floyd or what have you non-committal exactly and that just leaves it as as sort of that wash, as sort of that, oh, okay, it's this, oh, okay, it's that. Because for every good song, we got okay lyrics, or we got good lyrics, and eh, kind of a melody, and this, that, and the other thing. Nothing ever really seems, at the end of the day, to be committed fully to to really creating something that, that hits, like, the magic level. That, that, that hits, like, the next big thing. So many ideas are being tossed about. It's almost like they got jumbled up on the way through the process. They, that maybe this section of this song would have actually fit the theme of that song better in some ways. I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say yeah. Take A from X and put it in B of Y, and it'll work better. But at the end of the day, it scatters about in such a way that maybe that happened. Maybe all these ideas kind of came together, but the puzzle pieces that for me just didn't mesh up enough. So I'm I'm right there with Steve. It's a 3.5. Um so I mean for me so here's the thing. Saying it's non-committal is a very narrow path to walk because we've said we've praised albums for jumping around also. I think the difference is on those albums we've praised for jumping around, like the first one that comes to mind for me is um, a Blurry Face, is jumping genres from song to song. But each song existed in its own world. Whereas here, within songs, we kind of, besides the two funk tracks that we both, we all got really into, with those are more or less decidedly funk with a little bit of dance. Everything else does kind of kind of ebb and flow and jump around. Like, I mean, my favorite example is the John Frusciante song where he's featured on What Are the Chances? That solo is the only thing that says John Frusciante in rock and roll. The rest of the song doesn't at all. And that's okay. You know, I mean, plenty of rock guitarists have been featured in awesome dance or pop tracks. I mean, Eddie Van Halen helped make Beat It, Beat It. Like, his guitar riffs is what made that song what it was. But that song was decidedly a, a great fusion and committed to rock and roll and pop. That doesn't happen here with a lot of this stuff. Um, that said, I got more from this than I expected to from Duran Duran. Duran Duran, my love for them has always been very superficial. I just like the hits, and even then some. I don't know all the hits. But I remember liking them. And the songs that I can kind of gauge were singles here, or the songs that had certain featured artists. Like the Janelle Monet uh, Nile Rodgers song. Like, I love that song. And there's not even... It's not even the best song I've ever heard. I just really get into it. It's got... Gr- it's got... It's that funk. Yeah, it, but and it's the artists really blow up the track. And I think my problem is when I'm stuck with just Duran Duran, except for a few moments, I just don't find something new there. You know, besides songs like Only in Dreams, which was decidedly them and decidedly felt awesome and new, but also familiar at the same time, that weird kind of middle ground. 
other stuff didn't really. Um, I mean, as a dance album, it's for sure as a pop record, it still blows out of the water a lot of other stuff. But we had a pretty good dance record that I already rated higher in Neon Indian. And I just feel like even though Duran Duran's got the experience, they're falling back on a lot of crutches that they may have always used in their records. And that's fine. I don't think it's average. I want to give them a little credit for the theme being odd but interesting. And while you guys see it as detriment, I see it as something that elevates it a little bit. It's still not in the fours because it's just, it's missing something, but I think it's a three, seven, five for me. And there's definitely quite a few songs here I'll go back to, especially if I'm making a dance playlist mm. or I want to DJ a party. Mm. Like yep. there are tons of songs on here that would be great for that. So that's where I sit. And Matt, you get the final word, final rating. This is something like for me, <laughs> wandering in a, the shallow waters of a beautiful tropical beach and enjoying the warm, salty water around my ankles. And as I wade out further, it's the same depth, the same depth, and then I drop off and fall up to my neck in shocking cold waters that wake me up, and I pull myself back up into the shallow waters. This is a proudly shallow al album that surprises you with depth. And that's about as much as I can say. I give it a, a three. All mm. right. Okay. I, li I always like when our guests rate lower with the album they bring. Yeah. It shows a <laughs> sense of self-awareness, which yeah. I always appreciate. Um, Plus, they're not as nitpicky as us. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. I, 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 I can't possibly be. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously. Um, all right. Before we wrap up and Steve gives us our um, listener mail, which will lead us into what we're doing next week, um, I do want to take a moment to thank you, Matt, for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. It's, it's rare... I love burlesque and I love being in the scene, but it's rare to meet a male performer who hosts, who's also genuinely one of the nicest people you'll oh, ever talk to. Man, seriously, oh, thank like you, you brought whiskey. <laughs> it's true, but but seriously, like I think what gravitated me towards Matt is that after meeting him once, he's completely open to you and it treats you like he's known you forever, and I appreciate that. And it, it's. I love the work you do. I love your magic. I love your hosting. Um, I'm even kind of fond of your cousin who you don't like. So I just, I really appreciate you coming on and making this work. I know night times are tough for you, but I'm glad to have had you on and you're welcome back anytime. Oh, um, thank you. Before we wrap up, is there anything you want to promote? Uh, shows you want to direct people towards to check out? Um, you can go to my cousin's show, uh, Stash Novak's Midnight Fingers. That is every Thursday of the month, except for the first Thursday at the Slipper Room at midnight. Um, also coming up on uh, February 12th is the Wasabasco's Tunnel of Love, and Stash Novak will be in that as well. I will uh, be DJing that, that, that show as well. And if you want to see me do magic, uh, every Tuesday night at Bathtub Gin on 9th Avenue between 18th and 19th, I do a bit of magic at the beginning of the show and then also between the dancers at the tables at this beautiful speakeasy called Bathtub Gin. And that's with the Wasabasco Warriors, as I like to call them, as well. <laughs> well, um, again, thank you for joining us. And if you check out Matt at those places or his odd cousin, let him know that, that you heard him through us. You know, get that synergy going. We'd love to know that we you peaked interest from listening to us and then going to check out his stuff live, which please do. It's it awesome. It makes us feel really and cool. And also, yes, after, <laughs> I'm sure we'll put a link to his site uh, in the show notes, but please check out the trick he did on Fool Us. It's delightfully disgusting. Yeah. And kind of safe for work. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. There's yeah. no blood. We'll put no. it that way. No, no yeah, blood. Yeah, no gore. No, no gore. A little um, phlegm. Yeah. So now moving on before we have um, 
uh, Matt take us out. Steve, why don't you read our listener mail, which will lead us into what we're doing next week. Yes, uh, a couple weeks ago we received a comment, um, I believe it was actually on the Neon Indian episode, but he just chose that because that was the most recent episode at the time, in order to comment with uh, an album suggestion. Actually, initially he commented on, and I read that on air, uh, the Bjork episode, which was just prior to it. But that was after a hiatus where we referred to him as the mysterious Mark H. Yes. Because about a year ago, he sent us one of the most flattering emails we've ever received, which was this giant monstrosity essentially telling us how much he, he, he loved the podcast and how he just started becoming a, a random listener maybe about half a year ago at the time, which would have been like halfway through the year 2014. And uh, in it, he also included the album suggestion, Black Messiah uh, by D'Angelo and the Vanguard, which we reviewed back in episode 120. And then since then, we didn't hear a peep. And so we wondered what happened to the mysterious Mark H. And we referred to him many times as the mysterious Mark H. And I believe it was in the year in review that we referred to him as that. So that's why he commented, it is I, the mysterious Mark H. And he said he was tinkering with a couple of album suggestions. And finally, he came up with one. So here it is. After some careful consideration, I've decided that I'd like you to review the album FFS by FFS. FFS is a collaborative effort between the bands Franz Ferdinand and Sparks. I know you're at least a little familiar with Franz Ferdinand because Take Me Out was a big hit back in the 2000s, but I'm not too sure on your familiarity with Sparks. They are a group that has been around since the 70s and have tackled many genres in their career, but not a lot of people might be aware of them. But while they had never had a lot of mainstream success, they have also enjoyed a cult following and have been cited as an influence on a lot of artists. I'd be curious as to your take on the album. So, we will be reviewing next week FFS by FFS. And if, if it was said, because he seems to understand that we have mentioned Franz Ferdinand in the podcast, although I don't remember actually mentioning very frequently. I don't bring him up a lot because they He's kind of come up, talk about They've yeah. talked about Take yeah. Me Out for sure. The, uh, yes. Franz Ferdinand kind of fell off the face of the planet a little bit, considering I really, really loved their first album, self-titled Franz Ferdinand, back in, I believe it was 2004. Yeah. And I have been eagerly awaiting new work by them. So, this is close. It's not quite. We're going to have to mix it up with Sparks, but I'm very excited to review FFS, the self-titled FFS duo project next Ryan week. Ferdinand Sparks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially probably pretty what it Pretty straightforward. So thank you, Mark. Uh, we'll be doing that next week, and we hope you tune in. All right. So on that note, Matt, will you please take us out for this week on the Crash Course Podcast? I would love to. Music is life, and life is good. <laughs> If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.